This is Jocko Podcast number 11 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. And additionally, today we have our first guest, Leif Babin. Leif, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here with you. Now, to begin this podcast today, I'm going to start at the end. I'm going to start at the end of my Navy career when I retired from the SEAL teams after 20 years. And this is the speech that I gave on my last day of military service, my last day in the SEAL teams, and about an hour before I walked back to the Tradep building, cleaned the last things out of my locker, loaded them into my car, and drove away from the SEAL teams for the last time. With 20 years of memories and experiences and the best times of my life and the worst times of my life all rushing through my mind. And this is the speech I gave that day. During my last deployment to Iraq in 2006, one of the first things we did was a series of operations on the eastern side of Ramadi. In order to execute these operations, we took a majority of the SEALs to Camp Corregidor, home of the first of the 506 Band of Brothers, on the edge of the Malab district of, Mar of Ramadi. Camp Corregidor was like Fort Apocalypse. They received mortar fire, RPGs, and small arms fire daily. The barracks were an old, partially blown-out building with sandbags in the windows, dirt floors, and no air conditioning. There were no showers. It was hard living. As far as the fighting, Charlie Company, from the 1st of the 506, who we, who we were set to work with, had suffered almost 40 casualties in the time they had been in Ramadi, and had gone from a fighting force of 140 to just over 100. Charlie Company loved having SEALs with them. After the first operation they conducted with SEALs, the company commander told his battalion CO he wanted SEALs with him on every mission to help keep his men alive. As we continued these initial operations into the Malab district, there were heavy firefights, many dead enemy, and multiple coalition casualties. It was intense, sustained combat. Many would have considered Camp Corregidor and Eastern Ramadi to be hell on earth. But I knew it was exactly where SEALs belonged. We soon completed that first run of missions and headed back to our main camp. When we got there, I told one of the platoon commanders I wanted him to select guys to form a seven-man squad to take back to Camp Corregidor. But he told me, he didn't want to just pick guys. He thought that some guys might not want to go back to Corregidor due to the hard living conditions, the tough fighting, and the high rate of casualties. That sounded reasonable to me, so I mustered the whole troop in the planning space. I explained to them that we were sending a squad to Corregidor permanently because the army is in a tough fight and suffering heavy casualties, and that as Americans, as servicemen, and as frogmen, we cannot sit on the sidelines as that happens. If there's a fight, 
we need to be in it. I wrote on the dry erase board, Camp Corregidor Volunteers. And I said to this pack of SEALs, if you want to go over to Corregidor, if you want to volunteer to be in the worst area, with the worst living conditions, with the hardest fighting, and with the highest chances of getting hurt or killed, then go ahead and write your name up on that board. And then I walked out of the room. A short while later, I came back in and I looked at the list on the board. It was filled. In fact, every single seal to a man had written his name on that board. Yes, every man had volunteered to go forward into that raging storm. That is who we are. That is what we joined the SEAL teams for, to do what no one else can do in the worst areas, in the worst conditions. We crave the dirt and sweat and fire and blood. Let there be no doubt. It is in our soul. It is in our nature. Sure, SEALs can do any job well, but it is in the belly of the beast where we thrive. I have seen with my own eyes the wholesale slaughter that occurs when SEALs are unleashed on the enemy as we were meant to be. And it is an incredible thing. It is also a thing of strategic impact. Areas like Ramadi and Sadr City, which after years of complete enemy control, become pacified soon after the sword of overwhelming carnage is wielded by the frogmen on the high ground. This is who we are. Death dealers, killers, executioners. And in being so, saviors, defenders, warriors. Now, there are those that say we need to change, evolve, and mature. They claim that the nature of war has changed, that it is more complex and demands a more sensitive approach. I say they are wrong. War may morph and appear different through the ages. And when you live through a war and you see it up close like we are now, you may notice complexities that you didn't perceive about the wars you studied in history class. But I tell you, there is nothing new. The nature of war has never changed and never will change. The nature of war is death. To kill the enemy before he kills you. The rest is details. Now, of course, we can handle the details. In fact, SEALs can excel at all of them. Gathering intelligence, assembling information, forming alliances, rebuilding communities, training, protecting, treating. SEALs can do anything. But these details can also be done by others. You don't need to be a SEAL to conduct those activities. I say, send SEALs forward into the violent fray. Send SEALs where no one else can go to do what no one else can do. 
Send Seal to find and butcher our enemies' soulless masses and leave nothing behind but scorched earth and rubbled buildings. That is our nature. As I look at the SEAL teams today, I say to you all, yes, absolutely, evolve. Get smarter, better, faster, more creative. Learn to mitigate risk when you can. Figure out new ways to win. Attack the enemy in new ways using information and intelligence. Infiltrate the enemy and turn him against himself, evil against evil. Adapt and overcome changing enemy tactics. By all means, evolve and get better every day, every chance you get. But don't forget the nature of war and don't forget the nature of SEALs. We must train brutally and without mercy so we can fight the same way, brutally and without mercy. Our job is to close with and destroy the enemy, and we do it better than anyone. Yes, our current wars will someday end. But war endures. Before man was, war waited for him. As long as man is, war will always be. Always. And our great nation... We'll always need men to do what is in our nature. Kill the enemy. Kill him as he sleeps. Kill him as he plots. Kill him as he hides. Kill him as he fights. That is our nature. And that is our solemn duty. Light the fire. Take the torch. Hold it high. Let it burn bright. Let it supply the warmth and light of freedom and liberty for our countrymen. But also, let the fire incinerate our enemy. Let the inferno consume everything he is, everything he ever will be, and everything he has ever held sacred. As I walk away from the teams today, I assure you I will never forget. I will never forget your service and sacrifice. I will never forget you, my fellow SEALs, for getting me here to this day, for leading me, for following me, and for watching my back. I will never forget our fellow soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines that have fought and sacrificed so much. I will never forget those big, tough frogmen and hardcore SEALs that came before me particularly the ones that raised me in the teams and taught me the true way of the frogman. And finally, I will never forget our fallen brothers, the many SEALs who have sacrificed their lives for our freedom, especially Mark Lee, Mike Monsoor, and Ryan Job of SEAL Team 3 Task Unit Bruiser, who lived and fought and died like warriors. I am humbled to have served with you all and I will never forget. Thank you. God bless the teams and God bless the United States of America. And then I walked away.
Now, I often talk about the Marine Corps, and I talk about the Army soldiers, and I talk about the immense respect and admiration that I and that we as SEALs have for them. But if you haven't noticed, I don't usually talk about the SEAL teams and the frogmen that fill those ranks, probably because I was raised not to talk about what we do. But let there be no doubt. I hold the SEAL teams and the brotherhood of the teams sacred. The SEAL teams is not just what I did, it is who I am. And really, it all culminated. It reached its peak in the highlight of my life, which was being in command of Task Unit Bruiser in Ramadi, Iraq. Task Unit Bruiser was my vision of the teams. It was everything I had always wanted the teams to be. Badass frogmen. Tough, mean, funny, aggressive, professional. Seals. Seals that take the fight to the enemy. Like our legendary forefathers in Vietnam. Seals that the enemy feared because we hunted them down and killed them. Task Unit Bruiser was what I always wanted the SEAL teams to be. But I was not Task Unit Bruiser. Yes, I was the commander, but Task Unit Bruiser was by no means me. Task Unit Bruiser was the men, especially a core group within the group that held the standard and carried the fire. It was those men that I am internally indebted for, for giving me that gift, for fulfilling the vision that I had. Men like Mark Lee and Mike Monsoor and Ryan Job. Men like Chris Kyle. And those are the ones that we talk about. And we talk about them only because they are gone. But there were many others in that core group, who go on silently, unknown to the world, most of whom are still in the fight. And it was those men, of course those fallen warriors that made the ultimate sacrifice, but also those unnamed men of Task Unit Bruiser who held the line and marched into the fray over and over again for me and for the teams and for the Navy, and for our great nation. I owe them everything. And I have one of them here tonight. His name is Leif Babin. And I'm going to let him talk about where he comes from and how he ended up in the teams. But before I do that, I want to tell you something about Leif. After we got done with our workup and before we went on deployment, before we went to Ramadi, I was talking to Leif and I was talking to the other platoon commander together, the Delta platoon commander, and Leif was the Charlie platoon commander. And I said to them both, 
I'm going to get you guys more combat than you can take. I'm going to break you. And I was half joking. But at the same time, I had actually already seen men break during a fairly simple deployment to Iraq. But I knew I would push these guys hard. And through timing and fate and force of will, the battlefield of Ramadi gave me the opportunity to make that happen, to push them and try and give them more combat than they could take. But they took it. And they took it far beyond what I ever could have asked for. These two officers, the platoon commanders, and with them that core group of frogmen, of warriors, in task unit bruiser. They never wavered. They never cowered. They never faltered. In the face of bombs and bullets and fire and death, they held true. And I will never forget that. And so here is one of those men, one of that core group of hardened warriors from Task Unit Bruiser that held the line. My friend, my teammate, and my brother, Leif Babin. Jocko, thanks for having me. I'm fired up to be here. Yeah, so it's interesting because, like I said, I mean, uh, as I go back and listen to the podcast and and hear what I talk about and, and how much uh, – respect and admiration that I always talk about for the Marine Corps and for the Army and I and I seldom talk about the boys and uh, as I was getting ready to have you on as the first guest which is very appropriate I wanted to make sure you know that everybody understood where I was coming from and I think people were really excited that you're going to be on um, having a lot of them read the book that, that you and I wrote together, Extreme Ownership, and being intrigued about that and having had me on the podcast and t talk about my life, people are, you know, interested hearing a little bit about your life. And that's kind of one of the first questions that came across as soon as I told everyone that you were going to be on the podcast. And that was, uh, you know, what was, here, here's a question. First question of the day. Let's break it down. What was the motivation behind Leif becoming a SEAL? And if he can give a brief resume of his career in the forces. <laughs> break out your resume. I don't ever remember wanting to do anything else. And uh, that's something I've heard you say, uh, you know, that you've, that's you wanted to go be a commando ever since you could remember being wanting to do anything. And I think I was exactly the same way. It was uh, I felt growing up, I grew up in the piney woods of southeast Texas in a, in a rural small town. 
and uh, we're, we're high school football is everything. It's just a few thousand people in the town. You get at least that or more at the at the the uh, the games or the Friday night lights every every uh, every Friday. Um, and I ran around the woods. I played army, and uh, I wanted to be a combat leader. That's what I wanted to do. And I played in sandbox with my GI Joe figures, my little plastic army men, and that's just kind of what I wanted to do. And then when I was when I was probably in I was probably in about junior high school, and uh, I, I was kind of figuring out, I hear about the Green Berets, and I had a cousin that was a Green Beret, highly decorated, uh, Silver Star recipient from, from Vietnam. Uh, he was uh, kind of a mentor to my dad growing up, and, and uh, so I heard a little bit about uh, about some of those, uh, you know, the snake eaters, and started reading some books, and I sort of learned about the SEAL teams. And uh, I, uh, I remember distinctly a little movie coming out. In uh, I think it was 1990, a little movie called Navy Seals, <laughs> starring Charlie Sheen, who was all about winning. <laughs> and uh, he, he so should have actually joined the teams and stayed in the teams. He, He'd probably be in a much would, better shape right now. No doubt, he definitely <laughs> would have been. It would have been better for him. No, no doubt. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that that really was something that kind of uh, propelled me. Like, what is this? What is this organization? I started reading about it. Started learning about it. Reading a lot of books about seals in Vietnam. And uh, decided that uh, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a SEAL. So I went to the Naval Academy to pursue that dream. And I, uh, I, I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I, I turned down an appointment to West Point because I wanted to go Navy. I wanted to be a SEAL. And lo and behold, as I graduated from the Naval Academy, I came up with a service selection night before our graduation. I did not get selected for the SEAL teams. And uh, that was crushing. It was a soul-crushing event for me. To think that uh, I was going to go out in the surface fleet, I wasn't going to be a SEAL. I was going to go be on a ship, uh, be a surface warfare officer, and uh, and yet it took me three years. I continued to pursue that and, and persevere through a lot of challenges and uh, through a lot of luck and, and a lot of hard work. The doors were open for me to to be able to go uh, to to get ability to go, and I had some outstanding mentors that looked out for me and opened some doors for me to make that happen. Uh, and, and I was able to go and uh, go to Buds, our, our SEAL training. Uh, and when I was there, I think looking back on the, that time in the, in the in the surface fleet was was awesome for me because I uh, it allowed me to gain immense re- responsibility and maturity that I probably wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And uh, in in kind of the peacetime, you know, pre 9/11 uh, SEAL teams as an assistant platoon commander, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for leadership, and and so I was thrust into leadership positions in the service fleet, and and I, I gained that, and I also gained a measure of just appreciation for where I was, and when everyone was. You know, when other folks were, were uh, whining about how tough training was, I was just excited and fired up to be there uh, just for the opportunity to do that. And so for me, uh, then I went and served at, at, a, at a SEAL, SEAL team as a uh, assistant platoon commander, and certainly the highlight of my of my time in the teams was working at Tasky and Bruiser. And, uh, you know, I felt like that's where, uh, had I not had that experience, um, which I almost didn't get, by the way. I mean, that was... I wanted to stay at uh, I was I was at SEAL Team Five and I wanted to stay at SEAL Team Five with the guys that I loved and, and trained with, and uh, my commanding officer at the time said, "Nope, you're senior. We're going to rotate you to SEAL Team Three. You're going to deploy six months ahead." I was furious about that, that I was get, I was going over there, and lo and behold, I get over and get to work for Jocko, and Tasking at Bruiser, and uh, with an amazing crew of guys from Charlie Platoon. That was a uh, uh, and. and it just wouldn't have been the same otherwise, and, and uh, I still love the boys from Team Five, of course. But uh, but it was uh, it was just a phenomenal experience to be able to have that. And you taught me to be the combat leader I needed to be, 
through uh, through a workup cycle, preparing me and then unleashed me and Charlie Batoon on the battlefield to get after it in a way that was phenomenal. Were we able to have a historic deployment that made an impact and saved a lot of lives and did tremendous damage to the enemy? And we came back from that from lessons learned, provided tons of lessons learned and and taught SEAL leaders for the next generation. Uh, and uh, that that to me was such an incredibly rewarding experience. And I think something that that built our company now, Echelon Front, and what we're doing, uh, and, and the ideas that, that have become the book, Extreme Ownership, where when I was teaching that leadership training, and you were running training for the, for the West Coast teams, providing those lessons learned uh, to, to teach guys to be ready for those most difficult combat situations. And, and I was proud to, to train, train those guys and, and uh, see the next generation of SEAL leaders go out onto the battlefield and accomplish some extraordinary stuff and, and, and reprove the principles that we learned and uh, revalidate them in different environments. And uh, that was incredibly rewarding for me and I think really shaped uh, when I decided to get out you know, a few years ago after you'd retired and really shaped what, we've, what this has become. And it's still rewarding to, to work with leaders in all aspects of businesses across industries and see, see them, see the light bulb come off in their head and watch them just go get after it and lead and win. Hey, back when... Um you said that you weren't selected to be a SEAL. What, what does that mean? Like, you have to be selected? You know, like, I can't just, hey, I want to be a SEAL. Let me join BUDS. Let me get through that and become a SEAL. Like, how does that work? Well, you have to get a billet to go. We call it billets in What the does military. that mean? That, that means that you have, you have a slot. You get a slot. Here's an opportunity. And, you know, for us, like, coming out of the Naval Camp, we had 16 SEAL billets. So 16 people got to go. We had a prior enlisted SEAL in my class, so only 15 guys were getting to go. Probably had 200 people that wanted to go be a SEAL, and you go through a screening process, and after that, you maybe have 60 or 80 people that are eligible to go, and yeah. only 15 of those are going to get selected. I was not one of those 15. So, so the, as far as the process goes, then, you you can't just be some dude. Like the screening process, how you're saying? Echo, the like piece a, that you're missing is that there's there's two basically two parts of the military there's officers yeah and there's enlisted guys and the mm -hmm. officers the basic requirement to be an officer is you have to have a college degree if you have a college degree then you can become an officer yeah. and if you don't have a college degree then you're an enlisted guy i enlisted in in the navy out of high school didn't have a degree and therefore i had to therefore I, it was pretty easy to get to go to seal training because mm -hmm. they they take they need more enlisted seals than they need officers mm -hmm. And so you, it's pretty easy to get what Leif's talking about, a billet as an enlisted guy oh, okay. because they just want to have they, – they need you. The officers, there's all kinds of officers that want to be SEAL officers. Hmm. So they have hundreds and hundreds, if not probably thousands of people that apply to be SEAL officers. Hmm. And they oh, you know, they take a very small number, 30 or 40 a year tops. Hmm. And with enlisted, there's probably, I don't know, 1,000 a year that, get, that, that show up and go through. And so that was the challenging part. And for me, I actually didn't become an officer until I was already in the SEAL teams right. for eight years. Mm. And then, and then once I once I did that, it was it was a hard program that I got picked up for as well. Uh, but it, it, you know, coming right out of the Naval Academy is very very hard to get one of those billets. But like Leif said, and actually his sister platoon commander that that was uh, in Task Unit Bruiser was the same way. Didn't get picked up. Had to go to the surface fleet and, and drive a ship for a while, and then showed up at the SEAL teams and and was we, in tasking. We actually went through went through buds together in the same buds class. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. And and I actually liked it because you guys knew how to do some of the administrative stuff that uh, most SEAL officers did Let's not get know our how evaluations. to do. <laughs> yeah, so that was awesome. So the, so you say, um, to, if you're an officer, it's harder. Um, what? And they choose just a, a few guys, right? So if you're an officer, I'm not saying as an officer it's harder, but there's there's less billets as Jock would just explain. Oh, okay, and so what's that based on? You know, there, there's less like, hey, I, I'm going to choose him, but not you. Is that based on the screening process or they or they based it on? Uh, well, so you got out of the different commissioning sources, they got a, a certain number of billets aside. So and then you, uh, it, it's. Um, it's not luck. It's based on your record. So okay. it's based yeah. on your grades at, at school. I mean, you had to have a high GPA, gotcha. which I did not. <laughs> and then you had to have a, uh, it, let, why don't you just rub salt in the wounds? All, all by, uh, yeah, I'm just trying kids. to understand, you know, <laughs> but no, you this, kind of so think you, the other thing in, in, you, they also based it on, uh, uh, PT scores as well. So, okay. so physical training scores, so you go through gotcha. the, the, the seal fitness test. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I'm going up against guys that are collegiate swimmers yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, cross-country runners and, uh, you know, folks like that who are uh, crushing me on the test, uh, you know, and, and, and putting up ludicrous numbers. Whereas, so so I could pass the test to go, but it, you got to go way in, above and beyond that to even be competitive. Right, so that's right. kind of where, uh, you know, where it was difficult. The other issue I had was that um, I had a bit of a conduct record. As well, I got in a lot of trouble. I still yeah, yeah. had a restriction, mm-hmm. and uh, I marched a lot of tours, and I had a lot of demerits. And uh, I, when I had some upperclassmen who told me to do something I didn't like a couple of times, I, I told them what I thought about <laughs> you it. Let them know. And that didn't work out too good for me. Gotcha. All Troublemaker. The, all part of the learning experience, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, now, uh, another thing that obviously came up when, you know, it's been coming up, actually comes up all the time. And, you know, being in Task Unit Bruiser, people have heard that name. They've heard it, you know, obviously around Chris Kyle. And I've been asked since the podcast started, you know, can you talk about Chris Kyle? And the whole time I, I knew you were going to be coming on at some point, and I've been waiting to talk about Chris until you were here. And, you know, people say, did you work with Chris? Did you know Chris? And the answer is yes. We absolutely worked with Chris and wanted to take just an opportunity to talk about Chris. And and one of the things that I would like to try and do is talk about Chris the Chris that we knew, right? The Chris that the Chris that Leif and I knew, the Chris that the guys that are actually served with Chris knew, who is a little bit different than the Chris Kyle that's often portrayed in the movies. For sure, uh, I'd be happy to talk about that. And uh, it's funny because people want to people tell Chris Kyle stories, you know, and, and uh, he's, he he really is the legend, which I think a lot of people don't realize was a name that was given to him. Uh, you know, that was his nickname was the legend. It was given to him in his, the platoon, the previous platoon before we worked together. Uh, and I remember I met Chris at that time cause I was with SEAL team five and I deployed at the same time under the aegis of SEAL team three. And so we were there and I remember meeting him in the talk. He'd just come back from Fallujah and doing some great sniper work there and, and, uh, working with a bunch of our, our mutual friends and, and, uh, and so 
his platoon was in the Pacific Theater at the time, and he got a chance to to to, to go forward and be one of the few guys uh, from the guys that were going to the Pacific that were selected to go to to Iraq and actually be in the in the fight. And so guys were pissed. <laughs> they were pissed that they were sitting there in the Pacific Theater training, you know, uh, some some local national forces how to shoot, you know, rounds on paper. And Chris was over there shooting bad guys in Iraq, and so. Uh, so they made they made this nickname the legend for him, which was uh, and it was very much in jest. Yeah. And so it's uh, it's funny that as he's, you know, as he continued to go on and do these great things, and now he's just this incredible larger life figure. He really is the legend, and, and it's really so. When I hear stories or watch the movies or hear people talk about it in a way, it's it is it's not the Chris Kyle that we knew. It's a diff, you know, it's it's a superhuman. It's uh, it's like a comic book hero. And and look, the reality is, I think. Uh, you know, having worked really closely with Chris, and he was our he was our lead sniper and point man. Just so people understand that, in in, in, in Charlie Platoon, I was the platoon commander for Charlie Platoon, which meant that uh, on every patrol that we went on, he was walking about eight or ten feet in front of me, and uh, and and that we we talked all the time. We were we were uh, in, in in working about where we were going in, working together. Uh, and and what areas we wanted to, to take down, what buildings we wanted to, to utilize, uh, and he was he was a guy that really drove a lot of a, a lot of our operations, and and uh, and so I knew Chris well. He was he was one of the uh, the three uh, guys with we had three guys that were on their third platoon, and, and and we called them the triumvirate. And these two other guys are still active duty. I can't name them; they're outstanding guys. But these guys have been together for three platoons, three rotations. Uh, three three deployments to the Middle East, uh, to Iraq, and uh, and so we call them the triumvirate. You know, which is the triumvirate is a, is a term from from the Roman era where you had a group of three people who share a position of power and authority. And these guys really drove. Uh, they really they brought up the new guys. They trained new guys and uh, and and got our our platoon really where they needed to be. And we're kind of the heart and soul of the platoon. And Chris was, you know, the real Chris that we knew and worked with uh, was hilarious number one and you know that doesn't come across when you when you uh to a lot of people that he was a guy who's just funny as hell always could crack a joke uh was, sometimes when he shouldn't have been cracking sometimes jokes. when he shouldn't have been cracking a joke yeah <laughs> he uh but he was a guy that uh you know I, I think it almost does him a disservice to paint him in a way that was this superhuman because the reason he was so successful at what he what he did is that he he worked really hard at that and was very focused on it uh, to really perfect his craft and and he, you know, not only that he he delved into the the planning. So we'd sit over a, a map and talk about where we wanted to go, look at different buildings, and say, and then we go on a, on a reconnaissance patrol, which uh, we had to run up uh, through uh, approvals through the chain of command uh, for for certain types of operations. But uh, Jocko, as our task commander, uh, approved. Our, our reconnaissance patrols and, and uh, meaning meaning that I could approve them, so they didn't really have to go up that 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 chain of command. So it's pretty easy to get them approved for people that are listening that, that, that didn't quite catch that. Yeah. So yeah, so we'd say, hey, Jocko, we want to do this, and he'd be like, great. So we'd go we'd go out and we patrol through some really bad areas, and we'd hit like a dozen different buildings. Go in buildings here, check out observation points there, see what kind of uh, you know, roads we could see and access that we could see. So we, we'd figure out what gave us the best advantage. And then Chris would figure out where he wanted to be. And, uh, and he'd put himself in that position. And so he'd get, I'm looking down this window. I'm looking through this loophole in the, in the roof wall. And, uh, and you know, he'd, 
he so he set himself up for success, which is awesome. Which is so, what made so him so So, for successful. instance, if if the angle that he would pick from a building would be looking down the long axis of a road where he could see four or five hundred meters worth of possible enemy targets, whereas another angle looking down a shorter road, maybe you can only see. 80 meters, and you have a much smaller area to cover. Mm-hmm. So he'd pick these areas that he thought would be the most prevalent, most num- the highest number of targets possible. Of course, and and that was, I mean, obviously that was how we made the. That's how we made the. Uh, uh, that's how we were so successful, and that's how we were able to 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 prevent attacks on enemy forces and or, or on on uh, enemy attacks on friendly forces rather. And uh, and so you know not only that but when when we go into these these positions you know Chris would be uh, he knew after the sun came up first call the prayer goes down in the kind of early dawn pre dawn hours and then the sun comes up and the city comes alive and enemy fighters are moving around and you know he'd be on the on the weapon when he knew that was looking down his sniper scope uh, when he knew it was uh, it, it was that was the highest in the early morning you know as the morning comes around you know that eight to ten o'clock. Uh, hour that's when we knew we were going to get contacted and you know late afternoon it was kind of the same thing he'd be on his, his gun and of course he, he had to rotate out at some point you could so you only it's only humanly possible to stay on your gun for so long but uh when he was on his gun um he looked down the scope of his weapon i mean he was very disciplined about that and i, I remember hearing some other guys being like oh man i you know i only have uh I only have eight or ten kills, and Chris, you know, how's he got eighty-five now? You know, some, some, you know, so at some point through into our deployment, uh, before it was completed, and you know, the reality is, you'd, you'd see some of those guys were, you know, we had seven other snipers in our platoon, and they did a lot of great work, and they did, they, they had some impact, and certainly did, did great stuff, but a couple of those guys I'd see that didn't have the same discipline Chris had. They would, they'd look down their weapon, and you know, thirty, forty-five minutes into it, they're not as you know, they're not seeing anything or they haven't fired any shots. And next thing you know, they're kind of having a conversation with their buddy next to them. Next thing you know, they're sitting back from their, their rifle. Next thing you know, they're just kind of looking through binos. And I remember watching Chris and just he's just looking through his scope for two straight hours and without coming off of it. And it was, you know, that was uh, that enabled him to be successful. And uh, that discipline really paid off. And certainly, certainly he was able to rack up the, the damage to uh, enemy fighters. No doubt about it. I know whenever I'd roll out to visit you guys in an Overwatch position, see everyone, and I would always notice Chris would always be on a gun. Like, I never saw him not on his gun. Of course, obviously, like you said, he's human and he'd take breaks, but I, I, I noticed that even on deployment, you know, I'd just say, oh, Chris is on his gun. And Except for when you rolled in the cop Falcon. And he was uh, crashed out sleeping with the rest <laughs> of you guys. <laughs> so that was actually kind of a funny episode where uh, we went in on boats and we snuck into... Uh, we snuck down, this is something Chris wrote about in American Sniper. Um, we, uh, we, we went in on, on the, the Marine Corps boat unit that was there was a great group of guys, awesome guys. And, uh, they, they took us very quietly down the river, uh, canal that kind of comes off of the river. We were able to, to launch off onto the riverbank, very quietly foot patrol in, into the city and, uh, and get into an area that uh, other people couldn't get into. It was super dangerous. The bad guys had no idea we were there. And uh, we were able to take advantage of that smoke, smoke a guy or two on the way in, and then and then move in and take down the buildings 
that were going to be this combat outpost as the army uh, they, they were following this giant mine clearance element coming down the roads, digging IEDs out. Jocko was riding in in a Bradley fighting vehicle, uh, braving the, uh, the, some of the most dangerous roads in the world at the time, you know, coming in with the, uh, the army battalion, uh, staff there and as our command and control. And so we were already in, we'd been there for, I don't know, three or four hours at that point, maybe, maybe longer. And so we'd shot a couple guys and, and we were, you know, we're uh, a couple enemy fighters, and, and uh, we still had guys in security positions, certainly, and guys on guns. But at that point, it was the IED clearance team was, like, right underneath us. I remember actually looking over the side of the building and seeing this giant buffalo, this huge uh, truck, armored vehicle with an arm on it digging out of the street. And uh, I know you were in a vehicle kind of coming in just behind that, a few, few uh, vehicles up the road. You were maybe a few blocks away at that point. And I'm looking down, I'm like, uh, that's like 30 feet below me, like directly below me right now. So if this thing activates an IED that explodes, like I'm going to take it right in the face. Probably ought to get up down and stop looking at uh, what they're doing. So we were just kind of hunkered down. And when Jocko came in there, it was, uh, it was funny because the, the, uh, in particular, the Army uh, operations officer for the battalion was a great guy. And the battalion awesome. was awesome. This was Task Force Bandit, a bunch of tankers, great guys. We love them. They came in and, and uh, I remember you coming to the rooftop with a major, and he comes up there and he's expecting just bristling weapons everywhere and all seals on their guns. And I'm and I'm looking over as the major's standing there and kind of looking around. And there's a couple guys on you know, on their guns, and and there's some guys on machine guns and people watching yeah, the stairs. Security was definitely yeah, security set, was set, of course. But I'm looking over and Chris and our leading petty officer had just hammered down these like. Chef Boyardee, uh, they, they didn't want to eat MREs, so they, they just crushed these, like, like he had like three or four empty containers of, like, yeah. Chef Boyardee meatballs. Looked like a complete and slob. It was just, yeah, it was just like, like, <laughs> spilled all over his uniform, and he's just like totally racked out, like, completely asleep, slobbering on himself, snoring, and uh, the Major was like, like, uh... Is this man wounded? (laughs) It's funny, though, because we would get, in the preparation for those big operations, you'd be working so much doing the preparation and the coordination and the planning that you wouldn't even stop for a day and a half or two days. And when you finally get in the field, you're tired. Exactly. And we we had to sleep. And that's when we had to sleep. When we knew we'd killed some bad guys, we weren't going to get attacked, or we we were less likely to get attacked in the next few hours while it was still dark. We had to get sleep then. And so there was a real reason for that because once the sun came up, we were going to get hammered. So we all had to be awake. We all had to be right. ready to go. So we had to get that, that kind of sleep when we could. And that was, you know, uh, one that particular operation, I remember in particular Chris, he was uh, he just kind of had a good sense about things because we were arguing over a building. I was standing on the rooftop, and I was like, okay, there's a building, there's a big building to the south that would give us a good vantage point. Let's move down. What do you think about that building over there? I'm talking it over with him and with our platoon chief, Tony. And uh, Chris was like, you know what? I like this building to the east. Let's what go over there. What do you like, four-story? Yeah. Yeah. He was pulling a four-story. And uh, I was like, I don't know, man. That building in the south looks pretty good. He's like, I, I think this building in the east is where we want to go. And uh, we talked about it for a little bit. And I was like, okay, roger that. Let's go to the east. So we moved, we moved about 350 yards down the street uh, to this big four-story apartment building. And it was... A, it was absolutely the right call. I mean, oh, if, yeah. had we not done that, we would have, because uh, it was, I think we had, what did we have, like 22 enemy confirmed kill from that over the yeah, next 40 that hours. that was prime about, real estate right there. About a couple dozen, uh, you know, probable kills. So it was, uh, it was, and it was at a great advantage point, and we were looking right down a, a long axis road that was able to prevent 
a whole bunch of attacks on uh, the U.S. soldiers that were building that combat outpost. And it was, and they were under fire the whole time. And as soon as the sun came up, I know you were sitting in the camp when those mortars came in. And, uh, you know, and then lo and behold, so this, the, the mortars explode in the camp. And we, you know, all, it's easy to just say, oh, mortars. But the reality was a gigantic explosion goes off. And we were 350 yards away. Frag was raining down fragmentation from that explosion was raining down on us from 350 yards away so it was massive 120 millimeter mortars coming in and, you know unfortunately killed a soldier wounded yeah. a couple others and uh and that very i mean within about half an hour of that chris smoked two guys uh out of like four tube. that were loading a, a mortar tube in the back of a truck so it, and when when that's that's who Chris was, and that's that's the impact that he had, and he had a good sense about what what where to go and what to do, and he was excellent at it, and he was just it was just awesome to work with him. He was so much fun to to be around, and uh, always quick with a joke, and uh, and that's the that's the real Chris guy we knew. And I'll tell you just to go back to the the fact that he you know after. You know, I, I was on, I was in the combat outpost. We take these mortars. Soldier gets killed. I remember there, and another soldier got wounded. I think in Iraq he got wounded as well. And it's it's a nightmare, right? These guys are bleeding out. It's it's a nightmare. And the thing, and we talked about this on the last podcast of how helpless you feel against mortars. It's the worst. And talking about because they came from maybe they could have come from three, four, five no kilometers idea. away. And Eugene Sledge talks about it, and we talked about World War One and how bad it is. And so you have this combat outpost, and all the guys are on there. They're, they're now horrified, right? You're scared. When is this next random bomb going to just blow up? We cannot be safe. And if you can imagine the when I got word from you, hey, Chris just killed two guys with a mortar tube. And I went to you know the company commander, and the brigade commander was down there as well, and said, hey, sir, one of our snipers just killed uh, two guys with a mortar tube loaded into a truck. You couldn't do anything in the world better for them at that time. Nothing better in the world to walk into those guys and say, hey, you just lost a soldier to a mortar. We got him. And that was one of those things that just helped build our relationship with the conventional unit so much. And you know what? We needed to have a relationship because you could sit here and tell stories all day long about what they did in return for us, which was also just incredibly uh, brave. And that we, very same day we were calling QRF, and I know you were you were trying to move vehicles out of the way so we could get the tanks out there to our guys that were pinned down and needed help, and those tankers came out every time. Those soldiers were, were amazing. You know when, they, when um, Chris Kyle got those two guys hot, like how far away is that typically? Or is there even a t- there's well, no typical, you know, right? That's the other thing, too. When people talk about these sniper elements, well, first of all, they have to understand that it's in Ramadi, in downtown Ramadi in 2006. This was, this was like Stalingrad. I mean, it was just rubble pile buildings. Just We, we had, this was Al-Qaeda in Iraq battle space. I mean, this yeah. is the precursor to ISIS, and it's the same people. Yeah. And they, there were several thousand of these guys that controlled the city, and uh, it was it was just a nasty place. So we didn't go out in these little two and four man teams. It was right. we were going in with 
15, 20, 25, 30 guys. You know, sometimes we had as many as 40 guys who were plussed up with Army and Marines that mm. went in with us. And we always had Iraqi soldiers, but we didn't count them as part of our uh, – as part of our. these are the guys going to help bail us out if, yeah. if things go down. So we had to have a big enough element that could get, prevent us from being overrun. And, you know, if Chris were here today, I think he'd tell you, man, it's – you know the the only reason he was able to do what he what he could was because there was a huge team of guys supporting him. Those right. the guys carrying the machine guns in that were helping beating back attacks. Uh, and guess what? When you're attacked by machine guns and 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 rockets from RPGs and and you got a dozen enemy fighters maneuvering on you, you're not breaking contact with a bolt action sniper rifle. shot sniper exactly. rifle. You've got to have those machine gunners that are going to beat back those attacks, and that's what those guys did. So, you know, without uh, without that whole team, and we, we, we were carrying our own shoulder-fired rockets. Our, our leading petty officer w- was always a guy that would carry the, carry that big, heavy 84-millimeter uh, recoilless rifle over his shoulder, this big bazooka-looking thing, and, and uh, the heavy rounds for that. And it was, it was uh, we had to have that kind of firepower with us. So mm. that was critical uh, for all that we did. But most of the shots... Uh, we're pretty close. I mean, you're talking urban combat is, you know, there wasn't a lot of real long range shooting. I mean, every once in a while, they, uh, I think, I think Chris and Tony hit a couple guys from 1500 yards or so out in a rural area. Yeah, I, I wasn't on that particular operation, but, uh, but there was, uh, but most of the stuff in the urban environment of downtown, I mean, we, we hit guys from as close as, uh, I remember a couple a couple times where uh, one time in particular, me and Mark Lee and, and, and Chris were sitting in a room, and th- we look over, and there's some guys like, there's literally some moosh, like some enemy fighters <laughs> with machine guns looking around the corner, and they're like, they're like 25 yards from us, like like you know maybe 30 yards from us. And they're they're looking down the street. They knew we were in there somewhere, but they got the building wrong. Right. So uh, so you're you're talking a thirty yard shot there. Um, with it, that's where a guy's coming. You know, I think Chris ditched his right his, his uh, sniper rifle, grabbed his M4, and shot those guys through the window. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know some of those shots are making a lot of. I think the average was I would say probably anywhere from one hundred to three hundred three hundred mm-hmm. yards, something like that, probably. And that you'd call that pretty close. Like th- it's pretty close for the hundred for, right. for, sure. for sure for sure these guys yeah. that are trained to make you know thousand two thousand yard shots and uh, so it's it's just a very different type of environment and that urban combat is it's personal you can hear those guys yelling at you you can hear them yelling the jihadi regular we're yelling back at them you know there's there's a lot of profanity going back and forth and and uh, but it's you know some of the stuff was hand grenade range definitely dang and you call them what mooj is that what you call them. Mooj. Mooj. That's that's that was like what we called the enemy fighters that we. Uh, so they call themselves Mujahideen, which is oh, gotcha, the, uh, those gotcha. engaged in jihad. That's their name for themselves, and so we Short uh, we shortened that. that to Mooj. And we actually got told that we weren't supposed to call the Mooj. Yeah, it's interesting how you, you can that? take a, a a real name, shorten it, and it becomes derogatory. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing was we were told that it was derogatory and inappropriate to say mouge and that it was disrespectful to the local populace mm. and when we talked to the local populace you know what the local populace called the mouge mouge <laughs> that's what they called them yeah. and so it's funny we had the cultural experts telling us we were actually we were talking to locals and understanding what yeah. was happening more than anybody else at that particular time yeah maybe it was like offensive to them though you know the actual mouge 
Um, Maybe they were offended. We were not so. concerned about offending the moves. Yeah. You're all shooting them. You're shooting them, but the moves, that's too much. Another example of the big culture warriors who just don't get it. Yeah. don't understand it. Yeah. It was, Those uh, local people were praying for us to go kill them. Yeah. Go kill the bad guys and, and, yeah. and free them from this evil terrorist uh, organization that is imposing this horrific... Uh, just brutal reign of terror on them. And so, yeah. I mean, it's exactly the same thing you see ISIS doing today. And we saw that over and over again in the city where you'd, you know, you'd go into a house and there's a family there and they're trying just not to get killed in the crossfire. And, uh, and they want your help and they're happy you're there. Dang. You know, uh, you mentioned Mark. And Mark was in the movie Mark Lee. He was in the movie American Sniper as well. And again, there's something that comes across in the public image or the image that gets created through Hollywood and through books and through media and whatever else. And they, they really, in the movie American Sniper, they really missed the mark with Mark. I mean, they really, they really missed the mark. No with doubt. Mark. Made him into kind of a weak looking guy that didn't believe in what he was doing, uh, which was obviously couldn't be further from the truth. Well, to that point, we get asked all the time, like, you know, tell us about American Sniper. Was that accurate? And, you know, I think I think it's important to say that, uh, first of all, I, I'm I'm very glad that Chris Kyle's story is out there. And I think that uh, to get people to recognize what Chris did and, and, you know, the impact that he had and the fact that uh, his his story is representative of so many hundreds of thousands of U.S. soldiers and Marines and sailors and airmen that have deployed multiple times, what their families go through, uh, and I think that's a great thing. Um, but it's a, it is a Hollywood movie, yeah. and uh, and so you know the the uh, the scenes in Iraq were not a reflection of the reality that we knew, um, and in particular that depiction of Mark. That's what disturbed those of us that served closely with Chris and closely with Mark were most disturbed by that. And it was just the way that Mark was portrayed. You know, Hollywood has they hate the Iraq war, so they've got to, they got to have someone in there that doesn't like the Iraq war. And so they, they try, they, they portrayed Mark in a way that, you know, he made some despair. They've got, they've got him saying, I don't even remember exactly what, right. what he says, but he says some lines about, he doesn't believe in what he's doing. And that is just utter and complete horseshit. I mean, there's no, uh, Mark Lee believed in that mission. I mean, he was, he was, uh, an extraordinary warrior and, uh, you know, other, when other people were out to kill bad guys and, and try to, you know, do a bunch of operations, I mean, Mark truly believed we were there to help the Iraqi people. We need to free these people from this brutal reign of terror. And I think he had a, he had strategic insight that uh, I'm not even sure I had. I mean, I, I read back like Mark's last letter home, and he talks about being involved in a great conflict, right. in a great struggle. No, he had like some... the one we're involved in, and it, and it's. I, I think that was very reflective of that. This is this, this seeing that you know the enemy that we're fighting here. This this type of jihadi, you know, this jihadism with this this strain of Islam that exports jihad across the world and and wants to go out and terrorize and brutalize people. Like this is a great struggle. This is going to be a generational struggle. This is going to go on for a long time. It certainly transcends Iraq, and I think he had, he really seemed to sense that in a way that was uh, pretty phenomenal in the movie is they, they make him out to be this sad guy that's all serious and 
again, they completely missed the mark. Just like they, they portray Chris to be this ultra-serious guy, Mark was hilarious, gregarious, another guy that was joking all the time, mostly at inappropriate times, and had that, uh, you know, he would just, he would light up a room when he'd come in to a room because he was just on fire. And to to portray him as this guy that's all down in the dumps and depressed, it was just, it was horrible to see that. It was it was just so opposite of the real Mark. I mean, this the brooding guy, and and, and they had him as this kind of like pencil neck kind of geek, yeah. you know. Yeah. To quote Patton, uh, couldn't fight his way out of a piss soaked paper bag. Yeah. I mean, Mark was a badass guy. He had, some, <laughs> he had massive arms. He carried his his big heavy. Mark 48 machine gun that weighs like 25, 27 pounds, fully loaded with all the gadgets on it, uh, with no sling. He carried his shoulder like it was a little M4 rifle, uh, you know, that weighs seven pounds. I mean, you know, with all its its gadgetry, yeah. it, it, he's he was a uh, just an awesome warrior. And and yeah, that side of him that was just hilarious. It was yeah. so many stories of him cracking jokes and just keeping everybody laughing. And we, we kind of talked about if you, if you're listening to the podcast and you haven't seen a series called on the history channel called live to tell, it is a fantastic series that actually a former seal friend of ours, Ray Mendoza, uh, produced. He did. He produced it. He was in Ramadi actually. And he relieved us in Ramadi. Uh, when we got done with our deployment to Ramadi, he's one of the guys that came in the next task unit that came over and took our place and he worked out of camp corregidor that's right which i just spoke about so they made an episode one of the episodes is about charlie platoon and mark lee and we we got to tell some of the stories there but you know there you don't have that you can't tell every story that you want to tell you want to tell every story every little memory you have of these guys you know one that always sticks out in my mind because he joined your platoon late and he came from another platoon, came into your platoon after workup, and one of the first trips we did with him was to was to Vegas. And we went up there to work at what's the name of Nellis? Nellis Air Force Base. Nellis Air Force Base. We went Space. up there to work at Nellis. And what of course, a boondoggle trip that was. Total boondoggle. We would work from probably about noon until let's call it six or seven o'clock at night, and then everyone would go gambling and drinking and partying until 10 o'clock the next morning, and then gamble. It was just one of those trips. But but we, 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 were, we were getting after it. And, and that's another thing about being a young SEAL. You don't have, you don't have, you don't, you don't owe any money, right? So you just, when I remember when I was a young SEAL, I was like the richest guy in the world. Because, you know, you go from being a civilian that's 18 years old making no money and all of a sudden you're getting a paycheck and then you get in the seal teams and you're getting dive pay and jump pay and demolition pay and you're like the richest guy in the world you're like a rock star and that's kind of the mode that mark was in i when we were in vegas was he was big time in it the getting after it well and, i remember you on that trip i remember you coming in and say hdh are you in <laughs> i was like i was like what is hdh you're like are you in <laughs> you just have and to I, commit I said, Roger that I'm in. Yeah, I'm, like, I'm I did, in. I did that with a bunch of guys. HDH, who's in? And I went, I went around. Guys like I'm in. I'm in. No one even knew what I was talking about. And then I at 
whatever, we got together that night. And I'm like, all right, HDH, who's with me? And everyone joined up. I said, it's $100 hands. We're going to the blackjack <laughs> table. We're all going to play three $100 hands. Which, boom. To, to those guys uh, at our Navy paychecks, was a big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we did it. And But the but playing uh, gambling with Mark was, was insane because he was so, so, like, hostile and yet at the same time fun. And I remember I came walking down to the casino and he's like, hey, sir. And I look over and he's across the casino and he's at the blackjack table and he goes, he must have been on a winning streak. He goes, when are the new Cadillacs coming out? (laughs) (laughs) That was just so, so him just to be fired up like that. It was just awesome. Awesome. He was just one of those guys, and you know, not only was he, he hilarious to be around, uh, you know, a big strapping, good-looking dude. But he he uh, he just was very comfortable in his skin as well, you know. Yeah. And he he uh, he was absolutely in love with, with his wife yeah. Maya, yeah. who's in that uh, in, in Live to Tell, and uh, he she had given him this these uh, <laughs> I mean these these little pajama pants. I mean, this is like, and he's he he would wear them around the camp. Yeah. Yeah. These, these pajama pants, and I was like, "Bro, wh- are you wearing pajama pants right now?" And he'd be like, "Yeah." And I was like, "Why are you wearing?" I mean, he's a new guy in a platoon. Don't, I was like, "Don't let Jocko yeah. see you." I was like, "Do you want to get your ass kicked? Like, why? Why are you wearing pajama pants?" He's like, "They're comfortable." Yeah. Maya gave them to me. Yeah. I don't like them. Yeah. I mean, he's like, he just did like whatever. You don't like them? Who cares? So it, that was just the way Mark was, and uh, you know, he just was. Uh, I remember in particular. You know, not, he was he was a strong Christian guy. He definitely, uh, uh, he had gone to seminary for uh, about a year or so, I think. You know, to study to be a preacher, mm-hmm. and uh, decided, uh, you know what? Instead of being a preacher, I want to be in the SEAL teams. But his Christian faith was certainly always a big big piece of that. And I remember some of the most random things we were talking about. Uh, I don't even remember how it came up, but if you remember the old 1980s song, "The Warrior." <laughs> Which is like cheese ball, 1980s, uh, you know, and, and we got in an argument about who sang The Warrior. And Mark was like, it's Pat Benatar. And I'm embarrassed to say that I said, no, it's Patty Smith. Because yeah. <laughs> I had this, like, you don't gi- have to admit that right this now, gigantic don't. collection of, you know, any song you'd imagine on my, uh, on my uh, iTunes. And, and, um, and so we argued about it. We had some wage. I don't even remember what the wager was, but it was... Uh, in fact, Patty Smith, that was right. <laughs> right on, bro. And I think that you know, you talked about his faith, and and we've talked about on this co- on this podcast before. The when you get somebody that is is heroic, that oftentimes they have a certain sense of the word that you just used was comfort. And you could see that with Mark, that he was comfortable in the fact that he might have to make the ultimate sacrifice. And I remember one of the one of the things that I'll never forget about Mark is as you guys would be rolling out on an operation and you would line up the vehicles right in front of the chow hall on our on our little base, shark base. And, I, you know, if you guys were going out. I would go out there to see you guys off. And just to, to help, help everybody understand, like we're rolling out on an operation into some of the most dangerous enemy territory anywhere. And, we, and people would come out with Jocko and our, our, from our task and shake, shake folks' hands. I mean, because you knew that 
it could very easily happen that not everybody's coming back from, from that op. Yeah. And uh, you always, I, it was always reassuring to see Jocko out there talking to people, shaking people's hands, and that was. Uh, and we're going out, particularly on an operation like that where uh, IEDs are, are call it causing catastrophic damage and killing soldiers and Marines every single day. Yeah, and those IEDs at this point were generally victim-activated IEDs, which means that the person that's going to get blown up is what activates the IED. So they have some kind of a pressure plate or a crunch wire or something that a Humvee runs over and causes the IED to detonate. That was sort of the the premier uh, mode that the enemy was in at this point, which meant that if you were in the first vehicle, you were most likely to hit that IED. And I remember I, you know, one of those nights came out and looked up at looked up at Mark and and I said, "Hey, are you feeling lucky tonight?" And he said a big smile on his face. And he said that the thing that one of the other things he had said in Vegas, besides, uh, you know, winning the new Cadillacs, one of the other things that he'd get everybody saying is when the dealer would bust, you know, he'd say, "Everybody's a winner. Everybody's a winner." And so I looked up at him, and he, and, you know, he said, "Everybody's a winner." And then there was another time I went out there, and and you know, I said. I said, you ready to rock and roll tonight? And he stood there in the turret and like like a movie. You know how they just have those cheesy salute scenes in a movie where the 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 guy salutes the officer? He like stood at attention to his turret and just cracked me a super crisp salute. And I, I probably like flipped him off or, or you know. Which is highly unusual for a SEAL to, to do. That's sure. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you could see, man, he just had that confidence and that comfort in who he was, in what he stood for, and he was ready for he was ready for anything, including including the ultimate. He was a phenomenal guy, absolutely, and just uh, an honor an honor to serve with men like that. The the the, the I think the last guy that they kind of represent. In, in the movie American Sniper is Biggles. Ryan Job, nicknamed Biggles, who if you if you're in if you're in the military, if you're in the SEAL teams and you, you use a heavy weapon, the weapon the nickname for that weapon is a big pain in the ass weapon to carry. And the, the nickname for it is a pig. And you're actually a pig gunner. If you're if you carry that big Mark 48, used to be an M60, now it's a Mark 48. They call that weapon a pig because oh, you got to carry that pig, and now you're a pig gunner. And his nickname was Biggles, and he nicknamed his weapon Piggles. <laughs> Biggles and Piggles. <laughs> Just to think about the way they represented Ryan, and and I don't remember all that well. Again, they they had a special screening of American Sniper for us down here in Coronado. That's when I saw it. I saw it one time. Um, and so I don't fully remember how they re- – I definitely remembered how they represented Chris and Mark, obviously. But, you know, Ryan, they, it didn't seem as significant of his role. So it was a little bit – they didn't make such a uh, production out of Bagels. But obviously in doing that, they again shortchanged just a fabulous character and an incredibly funny and – lively and warm human being that was 
a an absolute just an absolute treasure of a person and and so no one's going to you know if if all you do is see the movie American Sniper or, and even if even if we wrote an entire book about Biggles you wouldn't be able to get across what any of these guys really brought to life yeah he was uh he was a phenomenal guy and uh i actually uh you know some some people some people talk talk to me you know, I, people said to me before you know like, hey who's the greatest person you've ever met i met some phenomenal people in my life you know and uh i uh i, I think the my immediate reaction to that is ryan job ryan job's the greatest person i've ever met i mean he just was he was uh and it was actually what's crazy is when I when I first met Ryan, you know, when he he joined our platoon, he got the nickname Biggles because he didn't exactly have the rippling six pack. Uh, he was just a tough as nails guy yeah. that just would not quit no matter what. Was determined to be a seal, but struggled with the runs, struggled with the swims, and got the what we call the full benefit in our seal training buds, which <laughs> he, is he, he was no back. he was no incredible uh, athlete or physical specimen. Especially when he showed up in Charlie Platoon and TU Bruiser, he, no doubt he was not ready for the teams at that point. When Biggles got the Charlie Platoon, yeah, we rolled right out to the deserts of Southern California and got what we call land warfare training on, and that was uh, that's really man camp. That's where, you know we talk about SEAL training and people think it's all about carrying logs around and boats and all that stuff that you see from. That's really just our initial screening process, what we call BUDS, basic on our demolition seal training. Going out and, and working together in a workup is really where the the training to be a SEAL, to be a, a teammate, to work as a as a unit happens. And so our whole task unit, from Jocko all the way down to our lowest common denominator, uh, the most junior ranking man who happened to be Ryan Joe. <laughs> Uh, we went out to we went out to Southern California deserts and just and and we shot weapons. We learned how to shoot, move, and communicate. And it is everything is difficult. It is you're going you're dragging down men you know who are uh, killed in in for training purposes over rocks and through cactus and you're running and gunning and it's hot and it's tiring and exhausting and it's awesome. And uh, it's the training where same training that's kept seals alive on the battlefield and enabled us to do things for for a long time uh and and seals have been training there since vietnam in that particular place where we we go and train there and um it's awesome i love love it out there and when uh when biggles got out there he was uh he was struggling he was coming off of about i'd say 30 to 45 days of leave and easy living <laughs> he was and he'd gone you know after buds where he had to make it through training he had to be in shape and now you know one of the things some people struggle with when they get done with that training is now it's up to them now it's up to them to be in shape. Self-discipline. And some people have that self-discipline, and some people don't. And uh, I certainly wasn't in peak physical condition after that. I, I, I struggle with that. Uh, but Biggles took that to a new level. And, uh, you know, when he came out there, all of a sudden we're handing him a 25-pound Mark 48 machine gun, which he named Biggles, as Jaco said. And, uh, and he's got to carry this thing and carry the six to 800 rounds on him. Uh, and move through the jagged rocks and sand and desert in 115 degree heat, and uh, and he was struggling. He was struggling. Anyone, even in the greatest of shape, that's challenging. 
but Ryan was really struggling to keep up on that. And so uh, I remember having some very, he was in my squad. And so I was witnessing this, I was watching this, and we pulled him aside and said, hey, listen, if you want to be here, you better harden up. You, you got to harden up. The standard is here. Low, you know, the standard is, is way up here and you're here. You're way lower than that standard. So um, we had to uh, we had to push him to get there. And I remember some stern counseling uh, sessions. We assigned one of the guys from the, the triumvirate I mentioned before. It was one of the guys on his third platoon. Great dude. Our most experienced machine gunner. And uh, we assigned uh, we assigned him to, to be a, a mentor to to uh, to Biggles and train with him. And so every morning we would PT work, go for runs. And we so we, when guy, other guys were resting, Ryan's go he's, he's got to go out for a run. He's cranking out pull ups. He's he's training and working. And you know it was I didn't know how it was going to go then. Uh, he had a long way to go to get to where he needed to be to be physically able to keep up and not drag down the rest of the guys. And I don't think I've ever seen a guy make that kind of a transformation. It, and it was an incredible transformation. Ryan must have looked himself in the mirror and said, this is what I want to do. I am going to turn this around completely. And he became what we called Biggles 2000, which was the, the new model. <laughs> and, I mean, he by the time we deployed, you know, six months, eight months after that uh, that, that uh, workup. He was born again hard. He was born again hard. And he he was a... He, he never fell behind anything. He always kept up with everybody and carried not only his weight, but sometimes others who were struggling, and, uh, and he would help them through. And it was, uh, it was funny, uh, a couple of stories about him. We were out at Nyland. He's in the weight room. And you know one of the things about Bud, you're doing pull-ups, and you know I know Jock on his Twitter feed always has the the pictures of like uh, ripped off calluses from doing pull-ups or deadlifts, you know, with the with the barbell, and that's just part of Bud's. I mean, you tear up your hands on the ropes and all, all the O course and everything you're doing, and uh, and so we're in the gym at, out in our land warfare training facility, and he's got these like the fingerless like weight lifting gloves on like you see in like gold's gym and i'm like not allowed and i'm like seriously <laughs> i was like biggles come here why do you have gloves on he's like well i'm just trying to protect my hand he like gave me some answer like that. i was like no no you need to harden your hands up man no gloves and he was he, he was like roger that no gloves and he took that to such an extreme on our operations we always wear gloves on operations because you're having to smash through a window or wrestle down a prisoner and, and grab uh, the hot barrel. Yeah, grab a weapon. hot barrel of a, of a smoking red, you know, red, glowing red hot machine gun. He was a machine gunner, so he had to deal with that stuff. And so we were, were we were mechanics gloves, uh, or, or similar to to protect our hands from that. And in uh, I remember on patrol in, in Iraq, looking at him, he's like, no gloves on. <laughs> He took that to such an extreme. He was like, I am going to be a hard dude, and I'm going to roll out with, uh, with no gloves on and carry this machine gun. I was like, hey, man, where are your gloves? Then I'm like, hey, where are your gloves? He's like, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. And uh, he, I, I don't know if it was. Not smart. Not smart, but, uh, but hard. But tough. And he was unbelievably tough. And, you know, after Ryan got wounded, uh, and people that know the, show, the, the story of Ryan, he got hit in the face with an enemy sniper round on the same day that Mark Lee was killed, August 2nd, 2006. And uh, we thought he was we thought he was a dead man, you know, when when uh, when he got hit, um, I, the wound just looked so horrific. I just didn't think anybody could survive that. And uh, and yet he did. And I went over to grab his hand and said, hey, man, we're going to get you out of here. Hang in there. 
and he like sat up and told me he was okay. I was like, it was unbelievable to see that. I mean, just how tough that guy was. And, and, uh, you know, after that, um, we were waiting for about three weeks to see he lost his right eye where he got hit. And we realized later that he, the only reason he didn't get killed is because he was disciplined and he was on that machine gun. We were, we were two hours into an operation. It was a brutally hot day, you know, probably hitting 117 degree high in Ramadi. And, uh, and he was on his weapon looking down the sights and the round that was aimed for his head had hit his weapon hit the receiver on that machine gun and uh, and deflected uh, kind of back toward the, the right side of his face rather than taking his head off. And and, and that's what saved his life, that discipline. Uh, but tragically, uh, not only did he lose his right eye, but the shrapnel from that severed the, the optic nerve to his left eye, and he was left blind, completely blind uh, from that. And it was devastating when I got the news from that. And yet when I talked to him on the phone, uh, and he'd been intubated, so he had this kind of really hoarse voice. That's right. That's right. Uh, so you know, because they'd had him in an induced coma for for a while. Yeah. Uh, I think it was a week or so, several days yeah, at least. It was a long. It was a long time. And uh, it seemed like forever. And so we're we're waiting to hear. You know, his sight's going to come back, or he's going to you know have his left eye. I mean, this is the difference between being, you know, permanently disabled for the rest of his life, or or just having a, a nuisance of not having you know one one eye. And when we got that word, it was just devastating. I mean, I'm talking to him on the phone, and he, in this hoarse, you know, hoarse voice, he's talking. He's just telling me it's okay, and he's joking about wanting to get a parrot on his shoulder and an eye patch, you know, so he could look like a pirate. And he's just a, just a phenomenal guy. And uh, I don't know that I ever had a conversation with with Ryan from that day forward that where we didn't laugh hysterically. I mean, he was the kind of guy that just looked at all the things he could still do in life was not going to dwell on his disability, was not dwell on the fact that his eyesight had been taken from him in the prime of his life, you know, and, and he he just was a phenomenal guy. He showed me the true meaning of toughness, uh, and uh, he just was uh, of selflessness, and it was uh, it was just, it was phenomenal to be around him. I mean, he was just the, he, he would, uh, he was just such a funny guy. I, you know, I was thinking about it when I was, I was listening to an earlier podcast, and you were uh, quoting from the book that I, I gave you uh, about the time you gave me about face. I think a few <laughs> months after that, you get, I gave you the, the uh, War as I Knew It by uh, General George S. Patton Jr. And I was thinking, you know, Jocko had mentioned that we were watching Patton and Ramadi. And just to, to put that in perspective, we were watching, we would project the film up onto the back wall of the camp. And just, literally, it's about a 20 foot high wall. Just on the other side of this wall is bad guys. I mean, and we actually did a bunch of operations right outside that wall. So I mean, this. So here we are, you know, watching. We're all in PT gear, smoking cigars, in our, in our like workout, you know, shorts and and shirts, wearing flip flops, and you have like a, you know, these huge camel spiders run across your feet. You don't want to get bitten by those things. They're pretty nasty. But we we watched that movie, a Patton, and I remember in particular, <laughs> Ryan was just so. Uh, he was so he thought it was so hilarious. There's a scene in the movie, which is a phenomenal movie. If you hadn't seen it, the George C. Scott movie um, is is phenomenal. But there's a scene in the movie where Patton gets passed over for promotion, and one of his peers, Omar Bradley, who had actually been a subordinate to Patton, is getting promoted above Patton, and so it's obviously devastating. It's obviously crushing for Patton, and so one of his aides runs up to him, and he has the news, but Patton doesn't have the news yet, and he's like, "Sir." General, can I 
can I pour you a warm glass of milk? <laughs> can I draw you a bath? And, and Ryan, for some reason, thought that was absolutely hilarious. And I remember on multiple operations, we'd come back, you know, we, guys were smoked and tired, and, and uh, Biggles would roll up to me and say, sir, can I pour you a warm glass of milk? Can I draw you a bath? And just laugh hysterically. I was like, shut the hell up. <laughs> but we had some good times. The... Uh First of all, I remember talking to him on the phone when he when he came out of uh, the induced coma. And again, you know, like you, I'm thinking, you know, what do you say, right? And of course, he just puts you at ease and just starts making jokes. And then he says to me, and he, he gets serious, and he says to me, "I want to come back." says I want to come back can I come back and you know I said to him listen just get healed up and you can come back and he's like roger that and he goes don't worry and I said don't worry what he said don't worry I can still shoot. And I said, okay. And he goes, and sir, I can smell them. <laughs> I said, what? He goes, I can smell the enemy and I'll know where to shoot. And I said, all right, if you get healed up, I will bring you back over here. And unfortunately, I mean, he was in real rough shape. Um, it wasn't like he was just blind. I mean, he had massive damage to his sinuses, to his face. And, you know, we didn't get the, we were home before he could even, even would have had a possibility of coming back. But, but he certainly would have. Oh, there's have. no doubt about it. And that it. was incredibly genuine. And that's just the kind of guy Ryan was. And, and it, what's amazing is, you know, he, he went on to do so many things and, uh, you know, he, he married his, his girlfriend at the time. He was, was a phenomenal lady, incredibly, incredibly phenomenal lady. And uh, he went back to school after he got out. Uh, he was medically retired. He graduated with a, a business degree and had a 4.0. I was like, Ryan, I, dude, I think I had like a 2.83. <laughs> like, I got full eyesight, man. What, like, what in the world? And, uh, I mean, he just... He just could not be kept down, and, and he went and climbed. He summited Mount Rainier, 14,000-plus-foot mountain, completely blind. I mean, that's a difficult mountain. A lot of people get killed trying to uh, climb that mountain uh, with the full use of their limbs and, and, and eyesight. And, and uh, he went and did that uh, great organization called Camp Patriot that, uh, that helps, helps wounded vets and had taken him, taken him up on that climb. And he called me up uh, and said, hey, Leif, we're going elk hunting. And it's something we talked about in, in Iraq because Ryan was a big hunter, grew up in, in Washington State and had gone hunting. I grew up in Texas, and I loved to hunt. And, 
and I'd gone up in Colorado and hunted up there, you know, elk hunting. And so we talked about doing an elk hunt. And, you know, now I thought, well, it's, we can go, you know, we can listen to the elk and, and he can be you know, part of the hunt, but he can't, you know, how can he actually shoot an animal? He can't actually do that anymore. And he said, it's like they got some kind of gadgetry for me, uh, you know, set up. He's like, I'm going to shoot an elk. And I was like, he's like, are you in? It was kind of like $100 hands. <laughs> and I was like, I'm in. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm in. And uh, I think it was like my 10-year naval cabinet unit going. I was like, cancel that. We're going on. So Ryan and I went uh, uh, went up there with Camp Patriot. They had this crazy, like, gadget set up on the, uh, on the, uh, the scope of the weapon. And it was a it was a camera, and uh, and it was so you could looking through at the sights. And so we kind of had this. I was spotting for him, looking through the camera. We kind of got him situated, kind of told him when to when to hold. We kind of had like a ready fire uh, terminology we came up with. And and one thing about Ryan is that dude could shoot. And you know he he struggled at Nyland originally keeping up and you know with his physical fitness until he became Biggles 2000 and then then was born again hard. But when we got to our shooting schools. We realized what well, this guy could shoot. He was a great shot. And so when we were training with that, that uh, rifle, we were on the range, and we are practicing to go on this elk hunt. I, uh, I'm talking him in on the target. I realized right away, like, if we miss, it's my fault because he's going to be – he's going to – right when I tell him to pull the trigger, he's hitting that target, and he's gonna, it's going to be right wherever that crosshair is. So we kind of figured it out, and uh, we went out and tracked this, uh, this huge elk down that was donated by uh, – uh, you know, a great, uh, great group of folks. Um, and, uh, we went out, he shot a gigantic, like <laughs> world-class elk that was a beast. and, uh, he was, and then once we got it, we were cleaning the thing and he just, you know, he just, he just, he, he wanted to got his hands in there like elbow deep and, and, uh, in, in the cleaning process. And just, it was, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. And Ryan just couldn't be, he could not be kept down. He, he focused on everything that he could still do. And it was some of the things I couldn't even explain. I remember when, uh, he was living in the Phoenix area, and uh, I went out to visit him. And we're dry. We had gone out to breakfast, and we're driving back to his house. And this is—he'd only moved there after he was blind, so he'd never been in this area before. And we're driving past. He's like, "You just missed the turn." <laughs> and I'm like, "Obviously, I'm driving. He's blind. He's sitting in the passenger seat." I was like, "What do you mean? How do you know that?" He's like, "I just—you should have turned back there." And I was like, you know, soon I was on my little smartphone, like mapped it out. And I was like, you're exactly right. Like we had to do a U-turn and go back. I was yeah. like, I don't know. He had laid it out in his mind, just the grid, the grid system and what, how long it took to go where. And it was, it was phenomenal. And, yeah. uh, he taught me so much about just toughness and selflessness and, uh, and just the attitude of being able to overcome any challenge and be thankful for the blessings you've been given. And, uh, he was just, just a, incredibly awesome warrior teammate and friend and and uh, we miss him i used to uh grapple with him you know after he was blind and and he wrestled he wrestled in high school and so he he had some scrap to him <laughs> and i remember he, you know first of all he used to have the tears that come out of that eye so he'd be like constantly kind of wiping the eye getting tears all over me and I'd be giving him a hard time about that, like, quit crying on me, baby. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but it was awesome. It was awesome. That's a great sport that you can do. You know, you just, it's, you realize how much contact is involved when you're, when you're doing that and how you can, it's so instinctual and, 
But that was another thing. He just was like, oh, yeah, I'll grapple. I don't care. Can't see. No factor. And I always had to make him pay for the for the the time <laughs> when, when uh, Chris, that was one of the Chris Kyle's little, you know, little scams that he played was well, let me let me let me let me tell that that was uh so because i i had a good eyewitness to, to this scenario so jocko's our task and commander you know and he's he's a black belt brazilian jiu-jitsu and everyone knows this because we're training at five o'clock every morning and, <laughs> and we're all showing up and doing jiu-jitsu and uh and choking each other out and you could always see our you could tell who our task it was because when you called a, a name of someone we would turn our heads would turn our entire shoulders uh, at the same time, because our necks were getting cranked on. <laughs> That's right. Because uh, we had just battle royale, as you would encourage it. But uh, in particular, you know, Chris, and we talked about Chris Gow's sense of humor. It's a phenomenal guy. He had a great relationship with, with, with Ryan and, and uh, really kind of took Ryan under his wing. And, and uh, one of the things Chris liked to do was instigate. <laughs> he was a huge instigator. And, uh, and so they, would, they, they talked Ryan into... They're like, hey, Biggles, come here. You know, so Biggles, the new guy, is fired up. Like, hey, I want you to go get up in Leif's face. You know, so, and they'd, they'd have him come up and, like, stand in your face and, like, stare at you. Like, like <laughs> one, like one yeah. millimeter from your nose. Yeah. That's what he would do. Which was obviously very provocative. Yeah. And, uh, and so that was the whole point. They were trying to just instigate some kind of, which, you know, I'd, I'd shove them across the room, get out of my face, you know. They had him do it to Jocko. He wouldn't do it for a little bit. He kind of did everybody else. And uh, and then, so they're like, you got to do it to Jocko. They're like, you don't have any, you know, you don't have any balls. You don't do it to Jocko. So finally, he's like, I'm sick of these guys telling me. He's like, I got to prove I'm a new guy. I mean, they, his manhood's on the line. I'm going to go do it to Jocko. And we and he did it in a pretty public forum because we were, we were planning. This is on our uh, trip. We're actually pla- practicing like urban assaults. So we're in this kind of, it's kind of a theater type setup (laughs) and guys are, you know, planning the mission. And I remember watching every, so they, not only have they talked him into it, Jocko doesn't know this, but we all know it's coming. So everyone's watching this. And, uh, and so all of a sudden Jocko like turns around. And so I think Chris or somebody says like, Hey Jocko, Jocko turns around and, and Biggles is standing like one millimeter from his face, giving him this like evil stare down. And Jocko just grabs him like, you know, grabs him like, turns him around. You know, gets his back within like in like half a second, and just uh, throws a uh, throws a rear naked choke on him, and uh, and he uh, <laughs> he had to go sleepy time. And he's so he's like, yeah. You, so you got a rear naked choke on. You're like tapping. He's like he's like tapping, tapping, tapping. And Jocko's like, I don't accept taps. <laughs> and he just and so he's you know he just he goes to sleep. Jocko just kind of gently lays him down on the floor, and then we just kind of and they just went on about our way. <laughs> That's kind of normal day in the yeah. SEAL teams. And then and then you know so like you know six or eight seconds goes by. He like comes back, kind of slowly comes to, gets up to a knee, then stands up, and he's like kind of looks around like yeah. what happened, and we're all kind of Jocko's just acting like nothing happened at all, yeah, like, yeah. continuing on, and everyone is laughing hysterically, and then you know Ryan's like. I thought you you guys said you were gonna have my back because they told him, like we'll have your back, and, I, and so I, I, had, I had to like coach him. I was like, "Hey, Bagels, look, man, they're not gonna have your back. That's the whole point. Right? They wanted to see you get choked out. So, so I, after that, I think it was a good learning experience, but uh, pretty legit, good times. And he was a great, a great sport about that, just like everything else. Yeah, yeah. So, like you said, just an amazing, amazing guy. And if anybody wants to. Uh, 
anybody's feeling sorry for themselves or, you know, these people that ask about mental toughness, just just think to yourself about about Ryan. There's one more guy that uh that I've been asked about a decent amount and it's a guy that was in Live to Tell in the Mark Lee episode. And again, I was n- knew that you'd be coming on at some point to talk about, and we'd have an opportunity to talk about Tony, Tony Fratty. And Tony is a guy that I actually grew up with in the SEAL teams. He was, and, and just as you might suspect when you watch Live to Tell and you see what his attitude is like, he was a hard-drinking, fist-fighting, beer-swilling frogman. And, you know... And still is. And still is to this day. And there was, you know, how often he would come to work on Monday morning with a shiner or, you know, bloody knuckles. It was just, it was just a normal occurrence. I mean, no, we didn't even get asked questions about it back then. So Tony Fratty was an old school SEAL Team 1 guy that, you know, kind of like me, grew up in the SEAL teams and grew up in that era of the, of the 90s and the dry years, still had some Vietnam veteran mentorship, but didn't really get that opportunity to be in combat until, you know, until obviously until September 11th. And what a... We actually, even though we were both at Team One together, we were never in a platoon together. So we were buddies, we were drinking buddies, we hung out, but we never did a platoon together. And so I knew he had a very good reputation. He had a very good reputation as an operator. He always had that. But I never really worked with him. It wasn't until we were in Tasking a Bruiser together that I actually worked with him for the first time. And, and when I realized for the first time what I had in Tony beyond the toughness and beyond the tactical prowess was when we were actually at, we were at land warfare training, the the training that you were just talking about. And, you know, there was a little, um, kind of a, a quick operation to pull off. And it was just a quick, you know, hey, go and assault this area. It was the daytime. It was basically going through the mechanics of an assault on a target. And I was watching you and Tony. Tony was your platoon chief. I was watching you two kind of figure out the plan. And you threw a couple ideas out there. And he just said, hey, sir, here's what we should do. Boom. Put these guys over here. Set up a base over here. Bring the maneuver over here and put one overwatch position on this hill. That's how we should do this. And you looked at him and said, that's awesome. That's perfect. Uh, Let's get everyone over here. and, And why don't you just go ahead and brief them up. And he looked at you and he said, no, sir, you tell him what to do. It'll be better coming from you. And so here was a guy that obviously, because he'd been in the teams for 15 or 17 years, obviously had more tactical experience than you did. But he was so secure in his leadership and so secure in his tactical knowledge that it didn't mean anything to him. And he realized that the best thing that he could do for the team and for your platoon was to... Let you lead this. Let you put out the word. Let you give the plan. And I realized at that point, and this was early in our workup, that this guy was not just a tactician, not just a tough 
badass frogman, but he was a real leader. And as I know you will say, you were absolutely blessed to have Tony as your platoon chief. I, I got to say, the SEAL teams has produced some phenomenal, phenomenal individuals, some uh, incredible battlefield leaders throughout the decades in the proud legacy and history of the SEAL teams. And uh, I can say with confidence that I believe that Tony Afratti is probably one of the best combat leaders the SEAL teams has ever produced. And I don't say that very lightly at all, but he was a phenomenal, phenomenal battlefield leader. And you've heard of the break glass in case of war guys. This is this is that guy. And he was just uh, his experience level was phenomenal. I mean, he, he had had, you know, I had at this point to put it in perspective as a platoon commander, I'm on my second platoon. So I had one deployment to Iraq. Jocko had a few deployments before because he was a, you know, he, he would have been an enlisted man for eight years. And uh but, you know, Tony was, this was his eighth deployment. I mean, he had massive amounts of experience in the teams. I think he'd been busted down in rank like twice, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, hard fighting guy. And, and uh, he, he was, he wanted to be that platoon chief. That's all he ever wanted to be. And, uh, and he was incredibly, incredibly good at it. Um, I just, I can remember it, that same land warfare training you were just talking about. We're under fire. We're in a very difficult situation. There's a lot of chaos going on in this training environment. Here we are preparing for actual combat. And, uh, and of course, they're trying to make that as, as realistic as possible and as challenging as possible. And we're getting shot at from, like, one of the target buildings. And it's this, it's made out of, like, uh, you know, two-by-fours and, and, uh, and plywood, the, the target building that's, that's nearby. Tony realizes that we got to assault that target building now because we're taking fire from that building. And he does a like full on sprint, like wide open for about 50 yards and does human battering ram into the doorway. <laughs> One man clearance of the building and like kills the role player who's shooting at us. And it was like, that's who Tony is. He's, he's a total badass. He is going to handle the situation. And, and that's the guy he was on the battlefield. I mean, he definitely, um, he was, he was the guy. I mean, we leaned on him. the The only time that I ever had an issue working for Jocko Willing <laughs> was when Jocko said, "Hey, uh, I'm gonna have to put Tony with this other group of guys." <laughs> That's right. That's right. And I was like, I was furious and angry about that in a way that was. And until Jocko kind of took me under his wing, you said, "You said, hey." Um, here's why I'm doing that. Yeah. And here's why this I had is to important. I had to balance out some leadership. You know. And we put him with the most junior guy. Yep, put uh, him with the most junior officer. Who is an incredibly capable guy and uh, uh, and did phenomenal stuff. But it was the right call. It definitely was the right call as, as much as I hated that. But uh, that was <laughs> that was difficult. But Tony was just one of those guys that, uh, you know, he was intimately involved in the planning. Default aggressive. I mean, just incredibly aggressive. We're going to go in there and we're going to hammer the enemy. We're going to go right in his backyard where he's never going to expect us. And uh, and we're gonna we're gonna win. We're gonna crush them. Yeah. We're gonna kill bad guys. And and one of the things that gained us momentum, you know, you talked about uh, earlier, Jocko, of the the mortars that hit right outside the building you were sitting in and killed the, the, the soldier, wounded several others. We had IEDs going off, and I know you, you were sitting in there, and in, uh, in the in oh, the meeting right. at the brigade. I, I went to. I was actually I met the brigade commander once, I think, or maybe twice. But I went in there. Actually, you know what? No, it was the first time I ever met the brigade commander. So I go in to meet the guy that's in charge of all of Ramadi. 
and as I go in to meet him, I'm in, the, I'm in his tactical operations center, and we had put guys, Tony was out in the field doing a sniper overwatch for an ID, for ID emplacers in an area called Firecracker, where there was IDs all the time, and where days earlier uh, an ID had gone off and had killed several Marines and wounded several more. So I come into the tackle operation center, and, and I'm in there for 30 seconds, and a call comes in, and it's the Marines reporting back that one of the SEAL snipers had just killed an IED emplacer on Firecracker. It, it, and the brigade commander came out of his office to kind of see what, what wait, what? And then there I was. And so it was the, again, like with the mortars, I could not have ever set up a better introduction to the brigade commander than saying, than, than that happening at that moment in time. And we'd been on the ground for maybe two or three days and already starting to have an impact taking out these bad guys. And, and that fired the brigade commander up and he immediately wanted to employ us in different locations throughout the city. And that was like a blank check for, for getting after it for us was, oh, you want us to go into these worst, the worst parts of Ramadi? We will do so. And we will do so immediately. And that's exactly what we did. Tony really had a vision, too, as far as getting the platoon ready and, and making sure that we knew he he had a feeling that we might need some sniper capability. And so we plussed up the number of snipers well beyond what the normal number is within our 16-man SEAL platoon uh, to be ready for that. And he trained them and got got them ready and uh, and certainly leaned on Chris and his expertise there. But, uh, but Tony was really the, the driving force of getting our platoon qualified and ready to go. And uh, I remember one time in particular where... We were, uh, we, were, we were looking through a – we had moved into a really, really nasty area of south-central Ramadi, and uh, there were two buildings that were right next to each other. And we were – several of us were – I was in a group that was with, across the street. Chris, Chris and I were together on that one. Tony was with another group of guys that were uh, across – that were in a different set of buildings. And the building that we were in, just it just wasn't a good position. And we were trying to figure out where we need to go, but it just was not a good position the sun was going to come up within, you know, pretty soon, and we needed to get in position. So we actually fell back and took a, a building right next to where Tony and his guys were, and we actually smashed through the concrete wall connecting them. Uh, the, the 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 wall that supported there was no doorway or anything window, but we had to make a walkway so we could actually like get in and out and communicate with each other. And uh, I'm sitting in there listening to the radio and on you know, my command and control position after the sun came up. And Tony was a sniper looking through a, a loophole in the wall, which is like a, a hole that was maybe six or eight inches in diameter that we'd smashed out with a sledgehammer. Sometimes we use explosive charges. But it gave you a little bit of cover so that you didn't get shot in the face by some enemy, another enemy sniper across the street or, or somebody shooting at you with a machine gun. And... Uh, so he's sitting there on the sniper rifle, and I just hear this crack, and it was just a round coming in, and it missed his head by like two inches maybe. I mean, it came right in, just you know, whizzed past his face, slammed into the wall just behind him. And so I hear the crack, and then I hear some profanity, and then I hear some, yeah, like Rambo-style yell, and then I hear uh, just machine gun fire. And so Tony had... The round had come in past his face, and Tony was pissed. And he reached over, grabbed a Mark 48 machine gun, and dumped a hundred-round belt through the, uh, you know, through the uh, the loophole. We had no idea where the round really came from, but a hundred rounds got shot back in the general direction. And I think that was discouraging to whoever was shooting at us. So uh, that's the kind of guy who Tony was. He was gonna, 
Uh, you shoot a, one bullet at me, I'm shooting, I'm shooting 100 back at you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was the guy, too. We Because he had that relationship with you, when I first checked in to SEAL Team 3, uh, me and the Delta Platoon commander, who was a good friend of mine that we'd gone, gone through buds with, that Jocko referenced earlier, um, you know, we had heard about this guy, Jocko. And, uh, and interestingly enough, I actually heard your name before mispronounced, of course, Jocko Willenek, uh, <laughs> from a guy that I grew up with when I was in like high school. And he started training in jujitsu. And I was starting to talk about being in the SEAL teams. I wanted to be a SEAL. And, he, and he, our, our family friend said, yeah, I, I, I rolled jujitsu with this guy who's a SEAL. His name was Jocko Willenek. And, uh, and he beat me in this tournament. He's a great guy. You know, and so he was talking about you. And that, so, so I had heard that name before. Um, and, uh, and then when we were working together at Team 3, I was like, okay, I, I hear this guy, Jock, it's actually pronounced Willink, Jocko Willink. Now, okay, this is that same guy that I heard about, you know, years ago before I was even in the Navy. And, uh, and so, you know, we're like, who is this guy? We hadn't met him before. I knew a bunch of the guys already in the platoon. And uh, yeah, Tony said, I remember standing there looking at the board. We had the boards, like magnet boards of all the names that are going to be in the platoon. And... Uh, you know, I'm I'm at the top of the OIC, and then Tony's next, and then the, you know a bunch of guys underneath. Chris is kind of right up there, and and uh, and he's like, we're like, so what, what can you tell us about Jocko? And he's like, Jocko's the guy we want as our task unit commander. <laughs> we're good to go. That's how I, I was like, Roger that. We're good. <laughs> so that was uh, that was my first introduction to to Jocko. Yeah, yeah. And then as the Delta platoon commander, Jocko gave us his typical stare down. Hi, I'm Jocko. I don't like people when I Face, meet them. When you meet them, like, I'm going to intimidate you and look at you with furrowed brow and jutting out jaw. And, I uh, might have to fire you guys in, I don't know, two weeks, three weeks. We never know. So the Del Platoon commander is now, you know, just a, certainly a good buddy of yours. And a, he's a great buddy of mine. And was was like, who is this guy? He's staring at me. I, I don't know if he likes me. I can already tell. Yeah. And Tony was like, listen, he's good to go. Don't you worry. Tony, awesome, just outstanding, and I think one of the things that impressed me about him was that he, those old Vietnam lessons, the old school, just hardcore frogman stuff, he held the line on that as far as getting ready, as far as gear inspections, as far as uh, debriefs. And the planning, he just he just had that intense level of of patience and of focus on the operations. Like nothing else in the world mattered to him. He he drove standards, no doubt. I mean, he enforced standards, and he was just expected expected us to be hard. You know, when guys wanted to get soft and hey, I, you know, do we really need to push ourselves hard? Like, no, we're going to be hard. And and uh, you know, in his thick uh, New Hampshire New Hampshire accent, he'd say, "You better get your can of hide. <laughs> we're going, we're going out to get it on." And and you know, one of the things that became a mantra for our platoon was BTF, Big Tough Frogman. And uh, when Tony would say that, like, hey, we're we knew it, like we're going to BTF. What are we going to do? We're going to BTF in. We're going to get in a big mix-it-up, which meant a big gunfight. <laughs> then we're going to BTF out. And then we added big chow. And then we're going to go to big chow, hit the chow, up, we're done. But BTF meant we're going to go in. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. We better, you know, we're going to carry. A lot of these roads were so dangerous, we didn't drive it. So we would foot patrol in for, you know, kilometers, uh, carrying heavy gear, 
tons of water with us. We had to bring all that stuff in, and it was just, uh, it was tough. It was difficult, and uh, we were going to BTF, and we took pride in that. Yeah, you know, BTF pretty much came became a way to overcome any obstacle of any kind. Mental, physical, <laughs> environmental, all you had to do was just BTF, you know. Oh, there's some kind of a challenge, just BTF, BTF, and then what are we going to do? BTF more. <laughs> I actually remember Tony saying, because, you know, I don't sleep a lot, and he doesn't sleep a lot. <laughs> so we would spend time together when everyone else was sleeping, and he'd come down to my office, and I'd say, oh, what are you doing up? And he goes, oh, I was just laying in my bed, just BTF, 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 BTF. So I've come in. I figured I'd come down and see you. <laughs> I remember him sitting in the cab. He would get, you could track it. We'd, get, we'd come back from an op, he'd be happy. He was fired up. We'd drop our gear every single time with, with great, tremendous discipline. I talked about him at Forces Sanders. Hey, uh, we just got done with an op. Everyone's tired. Everybody's exhausted. Drop your gear is what he'd tell everybody. In you know, 10 minutes, I want you in the mission planning space. And we'd go through that uh, post-operation debrief, just talking about what went right, what went wrong, what we'd learned from it, what's the enemy doing now that we hadn't seen before? How can we adapt to that every single time? There was no cut in the corners. We, we did that every time we could do it in kind of a, a short, concise, concise form. But he'd be happy. We just got back from an op. We just went out and did some damage. And then you could track Tony's, like, happiness factor. It was inversely proportional. proportional. His happiness factor was inversely proportional to the amount of time we spent in the camp. So as, as the longer we stayed in the camp, he's like... He's like getting angry. I'm getting angry. And, you know, and if we had an op canceled, which was pretty rare, but every once in a while we'd have a night where we didn't go out, and uh, and he 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 would just be angry. I want to go out. I want to go get some. Why are we in the camp? And you know, uh, as we wrap up on Tony, and Tony was definitely a, a a force, but just so everybody knows that this was a a task unit of. 40 plus guys and there was absolutely a core group in there and charlie and delta platoon of guys that were without question without any question whatsoever warriors that like i said held the line and towed the line and went forward over and over again and and the rest of the guys maybe the guys that weren't quite in leadership positions but it was a very tough deployment casualties firefights killed wounded and there was stress massive amounts of stress and there was combat fatigue and there was fear but all these guys overcame that fear to do their job so we could accomplish the mission that was put in front of us i think that's something that has to be recognized you know and it's uh some of these guys are still active duty, and we, we can't, we're not going to name them. We're not going to talk about them. Uh, but they were a critical, critical part of the team. And that it's not, you know, as we kind of back to what we were talking about with American Sniper earlier, I mean, I think Chris would be the first person to tell you that this is a team effort. It is a huge team effort. And so we couldn't have done 
the snipers couldn't have done any of the stuff they were doing without the machine gunners, without the guys carrying the rockets, without the guys carrying the radio and all the heavy equipment that goes with that. And, uh, you know, the corpsman that's carrying his, uh, you know, all of his equipment. We couldn't have done any of that as SEALs without the support from the Army and Marine Corps and with the support those guys brought to us. And so it was a massive, massive team effort. And just particularly those guys in, in Charter Platoon, I was... Uh, I just couldn't have been more proud of of, uh, of our guys uh, going through some incredibly difficult situations and uh, and stepping up and getting the job done and, and and making the best of a very bad situation, doing what they need to do. Um, and uh, it is uh, it, it was just an honor. It was an honor to serve with those guys. It always be. We had some horrific days. I would do anything to trade those days. I'd do anything to trade places with with Mark Lee and and uh, and with Ryan Job. And Charter Platoon, who gave their lives. But most of those days were the best days of my life and always will be. And uh, it was just such an honor and a privilege to, to be a part of that. And one day I'm going to get the Delta Platoon commander on here, and I'm, I'm going to tell you right now he's going to say the same thing about his crew and the work that they did and the the incredibly harsh environment that they went through and the sustained combat operations that they conducted as well. So, thanks to all those guys. And thank you, Jocko Willick, for being our leader, for training us, for teaching us, for inspiring us, for instilling in us this default aggressive mindset to go out on the battlefield into the fray, into the worst, most dangerous areas and make a difference and win. And none of that would have been possible without your leadership. And I'm proud to have served with you. And I could tell you that was, uh, you read your speech earlier. That speech was incredibly powerful. It's something that uh, resonated across the SEAL teams with me, my generation of SEALs, and every SEAL that I knew or worked with about what that meant. And it really captured so much of what we think in a way that maybe other Folks couldn't articulate it, but uh, it certainly captured the message of what SEALs should be doing, the nature of war, how we need to train, how we need to prepare ourselves, and how we always need to, re to remain there. And when you gave that speech, and I was honored to, to give a speech as well at that, uh, that retirement ceremony, but as you packed your bags and, and retired and left the SEAL teams, I remember thinking, it's a sad day in the Jocola SEAL teams. And uh, and it really it really was. But uh, you certainly left your mark on the SEAL teams, not only for me and all the guys from TU Bruiser that we served with, but the generations of SEALs that you trained, that you passed on those leadership lessons there too. So we thank you. I'm not dead yet, but thanks. <laughs> thanks, brother. Appreciate it. It's awesome. And, yeah, let's... Uh, Let's quit talking about each other.
then let's get some questions from the internet. How does that sound? I'm with that. Echo. Uh, by the way, Echo Charles is here today. Echo Charles. Yeah. Hey, guys. How you doing? Glad Welcome. to be here with What's you all. What's up, Echo? Welcome Crazy. back. Yep. Right on. Well, I might as well read you guys some questions, right? Yeah. Do you it. guys feel the same way? Yep. Fire away. All right, cool. First question. I'm just going to direct these at both of you guys. Yeah. Jacqueline Leif, assuming someone would be a good SEAL officer, would you suggest they go enlisted first, get experience, then become an officer? Would you suggest that? Or the other choice would be just go straight officer commission. So right. I guess we have both of those examples here. Right. I was enlisted first. Leif went straight uh, commissioned out of the Naval Academy. And I think we're probably going to say pretty much the same thing here um, in terms of, it, it, to me, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter where you get your commission from. It doesn't really matter if you get a commission. It doesn't really matter. There's guys in the SEAL teams, there's enlisted senior leaders that are awesome examples. They're awesome leaders. They change people's lives. They have a huge impact on the battlefield. There's obviously officers that do the same thing. I think, you know, I had an incredibly lucky career, and I had a great career, and I wouldn't change any part of it at all. You know, I, I was lucky enough to, to be an enlisted guy and do multiple deployments as an enlisted guy and then be an officer and do multiple deployments as an officer. And it was great, and I wouldn't change any part of it. And I know plenty of guys that were officers their whole career, and they wouldn't change any of that. And I know plenty of guys that were enlisted guys their whole career, and they wouldn't change any of that. So I think the important thing is think about what piece of the puzzle you want to fit into and what you really want your, your expertise and your job to be. I don't know, what do you think, Leif? Do you wish you would have done some time as an E-dog, as a sled dog? For sure. I mean, look, there's, uh, there's a part of me that certainly always wishes that. Uh, but, uh, look, I think it's, it's just a different, it's a different job. You're going to always, uh, as, a, as an officer straight out of a commissioning source, I had to lean on those. I had to lean on those chiefs. I had to lean on those leading petty officers, those folks who had experience, who could help me and guide me. And, you know, no matter who you are, you're not going to have it all figured out. Uh, and it's something that, Jocko, you talk about often, we talk about often and when we work with companies. So having run our leadership course, what we call the junior officer training course, and every single SEAL officer that graduates from, for, you know, from every commissioning source that graduates from the SEAL training pipeline goes through this course. Uh, it's about a five-week course, four-week of classroom, one week of, uh, of field training exercise where we're kind of out in the field and putting these guys through some, some challenges. And I, I, I led that for two years. I instructed that course and I think we put 130 something officers through that. And the best officer, we had some great officers that went through that. And probably the best officer I put through was a prior enlisted seal. We had some officers that struggled and probably the, the guy who struggled the most was another prior enlisted SEAL. Mm. Both these guys have been prior enlisted and commissioned officers. So it just goes to show you that you've, every source, whether it's a Naval Academy, whether it's prior enlisted and going to Seaman Admiral program, whether it's coming in through OCS, uh, Officer Candidate School, or, or uh, you know, ROTC, uh, you know, at universities, you've got outstanding 
people that come out of those those commissioning sources. You got some people that aren't that good that come out of those commissioning sources. So it's about you, and uh, and I think it's it's kind of immaterial. Mm. The physical part is pretty important, right? Going in. Mm. Well, of course, you got to have some level of athleticism, <laughs> but it's not. Is that too obvious? Yeah, it's not. Uh, it just it just if you. Yes, show up and be ready to make it through the training. But that's right. that has next to nothing to do with your ability to lead people. Of okay, course, yeah. you have to be physically fit. You have to be able to I mean there's no doubt. You have to be physically fit. Yeah. That's like that's like a ground base. Right. No doubt about it. So if you don't have that, you're not even close. Mm. So everybody that is going to be in a leadership position in the SEAL teams is physically fit. Period. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm for whatever reason thinking just to be a SEAL. Um, okay, cool. All right, next question. Jacqueline Lath, are your book's principles universal or only for U.S. audience? We work with audiences anywhere. They apply to any, any anywhere. Uh, I mean, across the world, human beings uh, in any kind of leadership capacity, in any capacity, and, you know, business or life. And uh, Jocko and I have actually done a, a lot of work internationally as well. So we've done, I've spoken to groups in Europe. Uh, I've worked with uh, leadership training groups from China and, and uh, spoken in Canada. I mean, across the world, uh, we're, we're leaders or leaders are dealing with the same kind of problems, same kind of issues. Um, this is not universal. It only applies to America. It applies anywhere. Yeah. And I, what I found is, and Jockey always talk about like how, it's relationships, building relationships up and down the chain of command. So, and really that relationships theme is is kind of everything in life, where whether it's like your friends or your spouse, husband, or wife, or whatever, in the teams or in business, right? So relationships apply to everybody in the whole world, no matter what culture, U.S. or otherwise. Um, so each different type of person, right, where the people who read your guys' book isn't, isn't always going to be a military guy oh, or, no or a business guy. But I just I just had a friend who sent me a picture. He was in Frankfurt, Germany, walking through uh, out of his hotel, and there's a guy sitting in the lobby uh, at like the coffee bar reading Extreme Ownership yeah. in, in Germany. So it, I mean, this yeah. is uh, it's everywhere, and uh, and I think leaders who seek uh, to be better. I mean, this this book is for them. The principles in this book are for them. And a lot of the companies we work with, they, even if they're based in the U.S., they have they have ties to other countries, manufacturing plants in Mexico or China or you know across the world, and, and do business uh, across the Atlantic Ocean, across the Pacific Ocean. I mean, it's a very international, interconnected world out there. And mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, there's most of the companies we're working with these days have. Uh, have offices in, in South America or Asia mm. or Europe, and, and or they're kind of worldwide. This could, and this is going to sound kind of crazy, but this could easily be a relationship counseling guide as well. Well, obviously, if you take extreme ownership of your relationship and you you realize where where it could be you that could be the problem in your right. relationship, yes. Yeah. Now that being said, Echo Charles, this will not turn into a relationship <laughs> podcast. Not a marriage We're counseling. here to talk about war. <laughs> You're not going to be Dr. Laura? Yes. It's not happening here. <laughs> I know. Not happening. Good try. <laughs> Good try, Echo. Okay. Thanks. Next question. Tell us a story about Buds. 
So, so buds is the basic seal training that you see on TV and that you see carrying people carrying logs on their heads and boats around and doing push-ups and pull-ups and getting wet and sandy. And the reason that I don't talk about buds a lot is because it, it's not it's a tiny, tiny fraction of what the SEAL teams is all about. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when you get in the SEAL teams, you realize that BUDS is nothing more than a screening process to weed out people that don't really want to be there. Mm-hmm. But if you compare it to what you have to do once you get in the teams, it's actually nothing. Because there's no way that you can compare hey, you got to go get in cold ocean water and then roll around in the sand. Mm. Oh, no. And and I always think back to the the first time when I was in the – I was in, at Camp Corregidor, and I'm rolling out on the first major operation we were doing in the Malab district of Ramadi, and there's tires burning the street. There's smoke. You can hear the gunfire. Getting wet and sandy and being cold is a joke compared to that. Mm. So that's why the the whole buds thing is is something that I, I just it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. And I think I think some guys try and turn it into a big deal, mm. especially if that was kind of the highlight of their career was going through SEAL training. Yeah. But if you were in the teams and you deployed overseas, then that shouldn't be the highlight of your career. It shouldn't be the highlight of your knowledge. It shouldn't be the highlight of your of your the the man test that people like to consider buds not a man test it means you didn't quit being cold good job it's and to that point i think it's you know for those folks that didn't really get tested in combat or didn't get a chance to go out on the battlefield and experience the just incredible physical nature of combat and how difficult it is uh, then, you know, BUDS is like everything. And so they talk about BUDS all the time. And so it's kind of this legendary thing. And it, look, it's a great training program. It's been around for a long time. It uh, it screens out the people that don't have the characteristics, as Jocko said, that we think are going to be successful. And it works. And we should keep those standards high. Uh, and we should push that. I thought BUDS was a pretty good time. We had some great times in BUDS. I love the guys I went through BUDS with, um, most of them. And, and uh, but it's it's got nothing on combat. And, you know, it's interesting that some of the, the big political uh, – uh, discussions today you know one of the one of them is the integration of women into the seal teams into special operations into infantry units mm. and everyone's always focused on you know well if they can meet standards and and if they're uh you know if 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 they can make it through training then they should be they should be uh you know they should be able to go out and serve right and they're focused on training and the people they're talking about training at the highest levels because they don't know what it's like to be in real combat and mm. real combat is infinitely harder than the toughest. I mean, why are we talking about integrating the NFL? Well, you got huge, big, strong guys that are smashing each other, and yet that's, you know, maybe you get a concussion. Maybe you tear your ACL. Maybe you break your, your elbow, mm. uh, you know, or, or snap a, snap your wrist. You're not going to get killed. Very rarely does someone get killed in the football game, right? Mm-hmm. Where in combat is uh, is infinitely harder than that, infinitely yeah. more difficult than that. And, uh, and so... Uh, you know, and, and, and unlike a football game that's over in, you know, just a couple of hours, you're talking about something that can last weeks, months, even years. Yeah. And uh, and it's just the physical nature of combat cannot be overstated. It is incredibly difficult. And when people are shocked to hear that, they're like, hey, tell me some stories about buds. 
Like, you know, buds, uh, carry some logs, man. Don't don't quit. Okay, I mean, it's it's make it through. You know, yeah. it's uh, combat where you're you're, and you'll see it too. Guys who excelled in buds because they're mm. great athletes sometimes will go to the battlefield and they're like, I, I remember the first time that an IED, I saw an IED going off mm. about a block away from me, and we were sitting on the rooftop in a sniper position. It was my first deployment before Jocko and I were working together. And all of a sudden, there's a 100-foot fireball that goes up in the air. I mean, the blast wave hits me and just knocks me on my ass. And frag, just metal fragments and shards of concrete and stuff just raining down all over the place from, from a block away you know, from us. And uh, it, it, was, it was like, damn, that is, that is not something I want to be standing on or riding a vehicle when we hit that thing. And, and when you see something like that, like just... The, the kinetic energy of a round's coming in and just, you know, think of the biggest, strongest guy you can imagine with a sledgehammer just smashing a wall next to you and, uh, you know, multiply that times seven or 800 rounds a minute for a belt-fed machine gun. and I mean, it's incredibly difficult and, 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 and dangerous and overwhelming. And so you see some of the toughest guys that did well in Buds are like, ooh, not necessarily eager to go out in that. And so it's a whole new level of yeah. difficulty. And, uh, and it's, it's just... Uh, it can't be overstated. So I, I think that it's it's uh, the difficulties of combat, again, can, just cannot be overstated. People need to understand what the reality of that is like. And I think this idea that America is not going to, oh, we kind of dictate the nature of wars. And, you know, as we've been told, the tide of war is receding. And it's just not true. As Jocko said in his retirement speech, the nature of war does not change. And we're going to always have to fight wars. We're going to always have to be in difficult conflicts. We don't get to choose that. And so we better be ready for those those difficulties. In the late 90s, we would hear that from from senior leadership that you know, look, the the direct action mission, we're not going to be doing these those anymore. Why would we do a direct action mission when we can send in a Tomahawk missile? And then, oh, why would we do a reconnaissance when we can send over a drone? And why would we go clear buildings house to house when we have technology that can put bombs right into buildings? So this idea that we're going to have the ground wars are over, we need to move on to the next phase of warfare and, and adapt to a, a new way of doing things. And of course, what was it? Eight years later, September 11th happened. We spent 15 years in Afghanistan and whatever, 10 years in Iraq, that on the ground doing those very missions that everyone thought we would never do again. So, uh, so yes, the nature of war does not change. And it's not about technology either. You know, some of the guys that don't make it through that training think, oh, man, if I just, if I can just get through somehow and I'll get all this cool gear and I'll have night vision and lasers and I'll be badass. And it's like, it's not about that. And, and while we need to, we need to invest in technology, certainly, and, and equip our military accordingly, it's the people that matter. It's leadership at all levels that matter. You know, one of, the, one of my favorite quotes from uh, the hero of the Pacific War who was in charge of, of, of the entire, he was the, the commander-in-chief of, of all forces, U.S. forces in the Pacific, a guy named Chester Nimitz, Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz, good old boy from, from uh, Central Texas. And uh, he said, our armament must be adequate to the needs, but our faith is not primarily in these machines of defense, but in ourselves. And I mean that's that's just exactly true, and we gotta we've gotta always push those standards, keep those standards high, prepare people for the difficulties of real actual combat, and just how physically demanding it is and crushing it can be, 
and, uh, and be ready so that we can execute and we can win. Next. Next. Back to Bud's real quick. That's How long is Bud? Six months, right? Yeah, about 27 weeks or so. Because a lot of people think that it's like, you know, hell week, right? Mm -hmm. That's the time where you don't sleep that much or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think some people think that that's Bud's. No. Like you just don't sleep ever and it's all hard. They drown you and then they bring you back to life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nuts. Anyway, next question. Aside from command, what is your favorite operator specialty? Machine gunner, breacher, corpsman, etc. Thanks. Well, my personal preference was a radio man because I was a radio man when I was a young enlisted guy. I was standing on the quarter deck, standing quarter deck watching this. This uh, senior guy said to me, what are you going to do? What are you going to do in a platoon? And I said, I don't know, maybe a machine gunner. Because, of course, when you're a young kid, you want to be a machine gunner. Give me the damn machine gun. Mm -hmm. And he said, don't be a machine gunner. You want to be a radio man because they go on every operation. I said, okay, fair enough. Went upstairs and volunteered to be a radio man. So they put this 30-pound radio on your back and carry the radio. And it was very lucky for me because that got me in the position where I was part of planning even as a very junior guy, I was part of the planning, so I learned a lot about planning. I was lucky because I did shipboard deployments, so then I was involved in planning and working with the Marine Corps, so I had some experience with big conventional units, and I learned a lot then. So I was always very preferential to the radio man. I thought it was a the, the most cerebrally challenging job. Now, that being said, let me tell you what I wanted my platoons to think. I wanted my platoons to think that each guy was the most important guy. <laughs> and it, mm. You know, I wanted the the radio man to think that he was the most important. I want the corpsman to think he was the most important because he was going to save everybody. I wanted the snipers to think they were most important because they were going to kill everybody. I wanted the machine gunners to think they were the most important because they were going to lay down the fire and get us out. So, I was always a big supporter of all of them. And you need them all because it's a team. And and you get those people like oh this is more important or this or you know this, uh, my job is the best and yeah. you know as we were talking about Chris and and, and the kind of portrayal of an American sniper as a sniper and it, you've got to have that entire element working together you got to have those machine gunners you got to have the corpsman you got to have the radioman who's passing position and you know where telling telling friendlies where you are so you can get help you know directing. Uh, uh, help in where you need it, you know, and tell them where the enemy is. I mean, all that stuff is absolutely critical. I think as a, as far as a favorite specialty, um, I like to shoot. I like combat shooting, combat rifle, pistol shooting. It's always been one of my favorite things to do. I love that about the SEAL teams, you know, training in combat rifle, pistol shooting it, you know, moving and, and, and hitting different targets and shooting against steel targets. And we go to these amazing ranges and it's super fun. Uh, and that being said, that's not my job, and that is uh, that's a real realization you have to come to as a leader. Is that my job is not to shoot, and I got to be able to shoot because there are times when I've I'm the only guy who can do that, and I've got to be able to eliminate a threat, and I've got to be able to do it accurately. So I have to be able to do that, just like everybody else. But that's not my job, and I really learned that in our advanced training. You know, after buds, there's a another six months of what we call steel qualification training, and and uh, one of my instructors, uh, you know, as Jock and I often say, like failure is sometimes the, is, is the best teacher, often the best teacher. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember I was trying to 
shoot, lay down fire for my squad. We're under fire. We're shooting. And then I was actually trying to look around. And I got a safety violation for that, mm. for like trying to shoot rounds downrange and trying to look around. It's like, guess what? You can't do both. Mm. And I was like, Roger that. I should have gotten a safety violation. It's dangerous. You never want to pull the trigger on your weapon if you're not looking down your weapon, controlling where the sights are. And it was exactly what it should, you know, what should have happened. But it was a realization to me, like, I can't do both. And why do I need to be shooting right now? Because there's like eight other guys in the squad that are laying down fire and there's nobody else that's looking around. It's my job to high port my weapon, which means it's pointed at the sky, mm-hmm. and I got to be looking around, take a step back off the line. Jocko often talks about detach and look around. So I'm making that call as command and control. And if I'm not doing that, nobody's doing it. Mm-hmm. And so leaders have to have to always be reckon. You know, you have to understand the specialties. You have to understand how that stuff works, what the capabilities and limitations of your guys are. You know, of the of the departments and the team of the of the the assets that you have within your team, um, but you you don't you can't get sucked into the details. You have to stand back and 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 high port your weapon, detach yourself, and be the command and control to make those big strategic decisions. Check. Next question: How easy or difficult do you find it to dele- delegate command and control? It's really hard. <laughs> Until you are totally overwhelmed. Mm. And guess what? In combat, you're going to be overwhelmed. I mean, you can't do it all. And it's and so anything in life is like this. And so when you know, you know, as a platoon commander, I have got two junior officers who are my assistant platoon commanders. And they've, they don't have the experience I have. It's their first deployment. Um, and my job is to train those guys up. And yet, so I've got to give them responsibility and teach them how to be a platoon commander and, 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 and empower them and train them and mentor them. I'm sure it was incredibly difficult. In fact, I know <laughs> it was incredibly difficult for Jocko, who had a lot of experience, done a lot of direct action, capture, kill missions uh, you know, in, in Iraq, to let me be a platoon commander to go out and plan and run that stuff. Um, but you have to do that. And, and so uh, you have to train people. We always talk about how leaders have to work themselves out of a job. That's what they should be doing. They have, you have to do that mm-hmm. so that you're training the people underneath you to grow and, and learn and take on greater responsibility so that you can constantly look up and out and then you can grow and learn and take on greater responsibility. Yeah, we we talked about that a little bit too, right? Delegation, like well, in my case, the creative field, where if I'm going to have someone to take care of some stuff, it's hard to trust them to do it, even though it's just in your own head because you're used to doing it this certain way. And you even see that person doing it different, even in that one way. You're like, oh, you get all you know uneasy about it, but how you were talking about um, how you give them a, a, a certain type of mission, just like a... You know, you, you focus on that result and they yes. know why they're doing it. Here's what, here's what I want you to go out there and do. Yeah. Go out there and do it. And I can't really get concerned on how you go out there and do it because, you know, in Ramadi is a perfect example. It, it, you know, Leif had his element that was going out, but there was multiple other elements that were going out in different parts of the city all the time. And so I couldn't get in the weeds on Leif's and I couldn't get in the weeds on the other four or five element commanders that were going out at certain times. I mean, all at the same times often. And so I had to absolutely let go of it and let these guys make it happen. Now, the reason I was able to do that was because we had built up trust. I had put those guys through the ringer. I had micromanaged them and and, and just been a total um, 
I don't know, how would you describe it? I mean, when we first started workup, I was really in the weeds with them. Like, hey, no, you had, need to. You kept tight reins. Yeah, you kept tight, tight reins off. out of the gate. So look, this is how, this is how you need to do it. I, I wasn't telling them what to do, but I was kept pushing them. Okay, look what you did here. Think about this. Move in this direction a little bit. You can't do that right there. And, and it didn't take long where the guy's like, okay, they know what the expectations are. They learn. And now, I, now I don't have to worry about them. So now what can I worry about? Now I can start worrying about deconfliction. Now I can worry about what the strategy is. And, you know, for, for bigger operations, obviously, when we were doing battalion-sized battalion operations, obviously, I got to go out there and coordinate with the battalions and, and sometimes go out just to go out and make see how these guys are operating. But I couldn't go out to, with five different guys, five different elements at the same time or even two different elements at the same time. And so you had to, you have to build the trust and have the confidence in your leadership, and then give them the guidance, the parameters, the expectations, the goals. Make sure that's very clear, and then you can let them go, and you can let them run, and you can do your job. Mm. And that's how we rolled. And, and Jocko actually, I mean, I, I remember this well because I knew that he wanted to be out on the battlefield with us on every single operation. <laughs> I mean, that's just where he would choose to be, mm. and yet he saw his place as, listen, I've got to manage these other helmets. And I remember a couple of times where I was like, Jocko, why don't you, why don't you come on this op with us? Like, go, go on this sniper overwatch with us. And, and you were like, no, I can't do that. And, and even though I knew he wanted to do it, he knew he had to, you know, whether it was approval of plans for the other guys that were across the city or other helmets that were out there doing those things, that he understood what his role was and realized that if he was out there with me, even though it had been fun, he'd been getting gunfights, and, and that was exactly where he wanted to be, that he wouldn't be able to provide that support to some of the other guys and what they were doing. And so uh, so he couldn't do that. And so it was, I know that was incredibly difficult for you. And, and one of the reasons that Leif knows that is almost as soon as we got there, I said, hey, Leif, I'm going out in the field for a little while. You're going to be task unit commander. And I left him back and <laughs> went out in the field. so awesome. And, and <laughs> not, yeah, it was one of those all. things. And, and I'll tell you, <laughs> no. that, was, that was actually one of the reasons why I did realize I couldn't go out as much as I would want to mm. because I had to maintain command and control. So mm. like I said, if it was a big operation where there was multiple units involved, obviously I'd go out. Sometimes I would go out just to go out because you have to, you know, I always talk about this. You can't be so far back in the rear that you don't know what the guys are going through. You know, so I got to just go out there just to go out, go over to Craig or go on some operations or go out to the to the, the 1MC, 1MC and go on, see what it's like up there. But the fact of the matter is I had to be in the position to command and control. And I kind of learned that out of the gate when I left Leif back at camp. We had mm. some significant operations happen and he got you know he he got caught in a firestorm and i should you know i wasn't where i should have been so i had to tighten myself up a little bit had to be more judicious in the way in the timing that i rolled out because it is hard to delegate it's <laughs> hard to delegate especially not only do you want to do it but there's an element of you know pushing your kid out the out 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 of the nest for the first time yeah, and yeah. you feel like i want to be there i want to make sure that this goes good mm -hmm. and not that I, I didn't trust these guys and not that they weren't perfectly fine on their own but no matter what yeah these are your bros these are your buddies and you want to be there to make sure to give them everything that you can mm -hmm. and so that's another little element of it that makes it hard mm -hmm. but you have no choice
cool. Next question. How do you overcome the handcuffing boss? A boss who isn't a leader and doesn't trust his employees. And he's a credit hog. I know a little something about this. <laughs> Jocko the credit hog. Jocko the credit hog. Handcuffing us. <laughs> Didn't trust us. No. Not, not true at all. Um, that, that Jocko was the opposite of that. But this is, uh, listen, the answer is pretty easy. And this is something that Jocko taught me. Because I have a hard time with this. Like, you know, somebody that, if I'm more, I'm one of those hard-headed guys that, you know, wants to just go accomplish the mission, default, aggressive, let's get it done. And if someone's preventing me from doing that or asking me a question that mm. I think is even tangential, I'm furious <laughs> and frustrated by that. And Jocko had to kind of tighten me up a few times on that and say, listen, throttle back. Mm. And, uh, you know, you got, really what that is, it's just about putting your ego in check. If you put your ego in check and you make that boss look good, who, who cares who gets the credit for it? It's, it's about the mission and whether or not you're accomplishing the mission. And guess what? If you go out and accomplish the mission, the guy who's in charge is going to get the credit for it regardless, right? Mm -hmm. So that's okay, and you can't worry about that. And there's, the more you accomplish that mission, the, the, the credibility will be shared. The, the truth will be seen, uh, and, and you're going to get you, – you will – uh, reap the rewards. Your team will reap the rewards from that, regardless of whether it's the the overbearing boss or not, who's trying to be the credit hog. And so you just can't worry about that. You have to put your ego in check. You got to make your boss look good, and you got to accomplish the mission. The handcuffing boss. The way you overcome the handcuffing boss is by building a relationship with them. And I'll probably end up saying this on every podcast. Mm -hmm. I had the same relationship with every boss I ever had, whether they were psychopathic micromanagers or whether they were tactical genius, uh, laissez-faire leaders. I had the same relationship with all of them, which was they trusted me, they knew I was going to get the job done, and they gave me what I needed. That's what you're trying to accomplish. And some people, as Leif just pointed out, you have to work harder to achieve that. Some people are less trusting. Some people are more, more paranoid. You're going to end up having to figure out these other human beings. And that's what is hard about leadership, especially up the chain of command. So you've got to figure out this puzzle of a human being, and you've got to get towards that strategic goal, which is building a relationship of trust. And once you have that, the cuffs are going to get unlocked. Now, the other piece, the credit hog that Leif just talked about, clearly, clearly, if you are saying to yourself, he's taking all the credit and I'm not getting mine, that's the red flag. That's the alert saying... Hey, brother, your ego is calling. You need to put it in check. You, like Leif said, you want to make your boss look good. There's nothing you can do better to build trust with your boss than make him look good and give him all the credit. Mm -hmm. He's going to let you run. Those handcuffs are going to get a little looser every time you do that. <laughs> yep. I never cared about who got credit. Are you kidding me? <laughs> are you kidding me? We're going to put that ahead of accomplishing the mission that we're here to, 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 we're here to do? Yep. No. The credit doesn't matter. Give the credit to your boss. Deliver it to your boss on a platter, on a silver platter. Bring him that credit. And walk away from it and say, I'm going to go get you some more. And those cuffs are going to come off. Make it happen. Interesting. Next question. What do you do where you know an order is bad, but if you don't fall in line, 
the punishment will be terrible. Jocko, you talked about this when you were reading the Maxims of Napoleon. And I think the quote was something like, every general-in-chief who in consequence of orders from his superiors gives battle with the certainty of defeat of his army's ruin is culpable. And I think that's uh, exactly true. And that what that really means is extreme ownership. You own it regardless. And so, you know, in, in the military, you've got the, the uh, uniform code of mis- military justice, which is the, the legal framework that, that the military falls underneath, uh, our laws, our, our military justice system. And uh, you're, you're obligated to not follow a, a illegal order. So if someone gives you an order to go execute prisoners or do something that you shouldn't do, um, you actually are legally obligated to not follow that. And, 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 and that following orders, like, you know, whether you're, uh, and it, it didn't work in Nuremberg, right, for the SS guards who sent people to their deaths to say, oh, it's just following orders. It's not, uh, that is not a defense. Mm-hmm. So you have to, it's on you, it's, it's your responsibility. Um, and certainly under our own UCMJ, uh, it's, it's, it's on you. And I think in those kind of situations, you, you have to own that. And if it's truly bad, if it's truly catastrophic, you have to be willing to take the punishment. You want to punish me for that? Okay, cool. You want to fire me? Well, I, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to sleep better at night knowing that I made the right decision. I'm not going to go down this path that leads to, you know, the destruction of our team that puts people in harm's way, that puts, you know, that causes people to do something that's unsafe and puts them in jeopardy. Mm. And uh, and you got to be able to stare yourself in the mirror, and that's most important. And, oh, you want to fire me for that? Okay, cool. I'll take that. Now, some people, you have to understand that you got to prioritize, and there are those people that are like over the top everything is like you're telling me to do this and i don't agree with it and it's really not that big of a deal Mm. and one example i thought of people are shocked to hear about what it's like going to war in today's world the administrative requirements that are on you Mm. the massive amount of paperwork that we had to do just to get approval for an operation uh, all the things that we had to do uh, that are required on us, and we're in the middle of a, a war. And guess what? We bitched and griped about that all the time. Mm. No one more than me. And Jocko was probably sick and tired of hearing me about mm. that. And one of the things he said right away was, hey, guess what? All these admin requirements they're putting on us, even though we're in the middle of a training right now and they're asking us for this paperwork, mm. we're going to do them. We're going to do them all, all of them. Yeah, and one of the reasons that I did that was because I did not want higher headquarters to have anything to hold over me at all. And furthermore, guess what I was doing? I was building up myself a little relationship with the boss man. Because, oh, you want admin stuff done? No problem. Don't even worry about it. We're going to build it up. That's what we're going to do. And then there were times where the paperwork did cross the line. And one of those situations that we ran into was not really a paperwork situation, but... They had, they wanted us to work with Iraqi soldiers. And mm-hmm. we've talked about this before. It's in the book. The Iraqi soldiers are very unreliable, unmotivated, can be disloyal, don't have good training, don't speak the same language as us, don't have good equipment. I mean, it's just a, a laundry list of reasons why you don't want to put your guys' lives in their hands. Mm-hmm. Well, in Ramadi, the fighting was horrible in 2006. In other areas of Iraq, the fighting had actually settled down. Well, the command above us wanted us to work with Iraqi soldiers. They wanted all the special operations people to work with Iraqi soldiers. So they actually, and, and the, all of the special operations people, mostly, were resistant to this. And so everyone would kind of skate by and figure out how to not do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take, 
I'm going to take a 25-man element of U.S. special operators, and we'll take three Iraqis with us so, just, to, just to kind of check the box. <laughs> right, and you can see why they were doing this. You know why? Because it's safer. It's, it's a way they're, okay, we're, we're doing what you said, and they were actually using the term Iraqi face. We're going to put an Iraqi face on this mission, which to them literally meant one face in some cases. Mm. So we get told this as well, and if, you've, you know, if you read the book, we'll talk, we talk about the fact that, yeah, we were definitely – not pro taking Iraqis, but we realized that if we didn't do that, if we didn't get the Iraqis out there fighting, they were never going to learn how to fight, and we were never going to be able to leave Iraq. So we knew that it was something we had to do. But then they went one step further, and they set up a ratio. And I know this sounds crazy. They set up a ratio, and they said, I think it was for every one American soldier, you have to have five Iraqi soldiers with you. It was some ratio like that, some number. And if you were out in some part of central Iraq outside of a small town and you were doing some kind of a simple mission, you could get away with that all day long. In Ramadi, wasn't happening. That would have meant I would have been sending three or four SEALs out with 20-something Iraqis. And that means if there's a firefight, you got three guys that are reliable. If one SEAL gets hit, who else is going to handle things? It's a nightmare. And so this order came down and... I just ran up the chain of command and said, we can't do that. Hmm. And we're not going to do that. Here's what we're taking. We'll take as many Iraqis as appropriate, but this is the minimum force we're going to have every operation that we go on. And so we set that standard. And of course, and this is something I talk about a, a lot as well. It was a sensible argument. Hmm. It made sense. There was obviously casualties on a regular basis in Ramadi. There were hmm. firefights every single day. The platoon out in Corregidor, their first 24 missions in a row, they got in a firefight. Mm. 24 missions in a row, they got in a firefight. Then they had one day where they didn't, and then the next day they did again for another however many missions. So there were firefights happening on every mission. So for us to be like, okay, yeah, we'll just bring three SEALs and 15 Iraqi soldiers. It's a nightmare. We're all going to get killed if we do that. But one of the, one of the reasons that, that we were able to do that, that Jocko was able to get approval for that, is because... All the little stuff that all, you know, other people would say, oh, we don't want to do this paperwork or that's too much. And they complained. We had done that. We had done those little things. Uh, yeah, it's a pain for us. Yeah, do I want to do that? Of course not. Mm. I'd rather be trained doing other stuff, but we're going to do it. And so because Jocko had, had set that standard and we made it happen, then when we really push back for the stuff that really mattered, which is what I was talking about, you got to prioritize and execute, prioritize the stuff that really matters. Mm. We were able to get that approved. And guess what? They didn't want us to go out and get killed. Mm. So is we explained it up the chain of like, listen, if we do that, we're going we're gonna to get a lot of guys killed by doing that. Mm -hmm. And I talk about this often, the fact that leadership is aligned to the front troops. And if not, then there's something drastically wrong. But, of course, my bosses wanted me to keep my guys safe and kill bad guys and win the war. Of course they did. And in, in, in businesses, of course the boss wants you to be profitable and keep your troops happy. But be profitable, mm -hmm. be ethical, right? That, those are standard things, and those are going to be aligned. So if you send up a, a, an idea up the chain of command or you get told to do something and you don't do it because it's not going to help you be profitable, why would your boss disagree with that? Mm. It's not going to happen. So you have to have the, the wherewithal to actually know when to say no. And on the moral and ethical things that Leif talked about, those are clear cut. Those are clear cut. If you're getting told to do something that's illegal or, or immoral, then it is your duty and responsibility 
to disobey that order. And, and that's the way it is. Last question. My team has missed our last two deadlines. I want to take ownership, but I'm not sure how. It's not what you preach. It's what you tolerate. And look, you, you, have, to, you have to be effective. We, we talk about there's, two, there's only two measures that really that matter. And that's effective and ineffective. Are you effective? Are you accomplishing the mission? And if you are, figure out a way to become even more effective. If you're ineffective, you're not accomplishing the mission, then you got to figure it out. You got to take ownership of that. You got to solve that problem. And so if your team isn't getting the job done, you can't tolerate less than that. You, as a leader, you have to drive those standards. I learned pretty early on that in the SEAL teams, there's some strong personalities there, which is awesome. That's one of the great things about the SEAL teams. And there's always this tension between people have their mind, we should do it this way, or we should do it this way, or we should train this hard, or we should focus here or there. And, and that's awesome. You have some uh, incredibly talented, great guys, as, as we've just talked about. But as a leader, you have got to maintain the standards. And there's some, there are standards that just cannot be compromised. You've got to push hard. You've got to drive that performance. You've got to set the tone for that. And if you don't do that, no one's going to do it. So it's not what you preach. It's not the words that you say. It's not the email that you sent. It's not the banner that you created to put on the wall or the PowerPoint slides that you built. It's actually what you tolerate. It's the performance that you see. And if it's substandard, you got to push again and you got to push again. You got to set that bar high. Now, that being said, you can't drive your team into the ground. You have to lead them. You can't be a slave driver. You can't destroy your team. You can't be overbearing. But for that, those things that really matter, pushing performance to the next level, you have got to set that standard. And I think that's what makes truly the, the best military units, the best teams out there great. It's not what you preach, it's what you tolerate. And with that, well, one thing I like to think about when when I hear about standards and what you're going to tolerate don't just think about your team you got to think about yourself you got to think about raising the bar on yourself you got to think about what you're going to tolerate from yourself and how you can raise that bar and raise that standard and get better with everything you do, and thereby lead by example so that your team becomes the example. And with that, 
I think we'll close it out. That was a long haul on the podcast. I wanted to uh, say thanks to everybody that's been tuning in and listening to the podcast. It's been amazing getting all the feedback. Thanks, obviously, to my brother here, Leif Babin, for coming on. I know he'll be on again. If anybody out there wants to continue these conversations out there on the interwebs, you can connect with us. On Twitter, I'm at Jocko Willink. Leif is at Leif Babin. And of course, as you know, Echo Charles is at Echo Charles. Thanks for leaving reviews of the podcast and of the book on iTunes and Amazon. That is very helpful to us so we know how we're doing. And most of all, for everyone that's out there, in your little chunk of the world, listening to our little chunk of the world, thanks for getting out there and for getting after it. And so, until next time, this is Jocko, Leif, and Echo. Out.